Hello, my fellow Westorians. It's another Sunday. It's time for more Valar Reredus. Let's see what today brings us, eh, my fellow Westorians, and a eh, Dancing Sean of House Beard. How are you doing today, hey. my friend? What are you drinking? I'm doing well. It's great to be here. I have a delicious beverage. This is the mango naked drink mixed with a coconut pineapple sparkling ice and, of course, mixed with Mountain Dew. Of course. <laughs> the base very sweet and citrusy. You really like to take it from a, like, almost healthy drink to a not nearly as healthy drink. <laughs> I want that caffeine in there. It's hard to have a, a healthy beverage when your basis for everything is Mountain Dew. <laughs> 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 so imagine a soup where the broth is a Mountain Dew <laughs> okay, no, I do not want to think about that. Stop thinking about that, everyone. <laughs> Don't do that. I can't stop thinking. <laughs> Let's change the subject. So, Sean, you have been talking about movie stuff. You know, you've got your channel and you have done short videos on movies that were up for awards. But recently you've been thinking about maybe doing some underrated films, things that are uh, maybe not gotten as much attention that you think are worthy of more attention? Are there any, any, any in particular that you're thinking about or just the process that's something you want to mention? Yeah, uh, I've actually got a lot in my brain that I want to do. I need to buckle down and get it done because I, I kind of want to build a catalog. I want to do some sort of classic movies that most people have seen just so that you can see how my reviews are going. Yeah. So I'll do Indiana Jones and Star Wars or whatever, but also want to do things that maybe everyone hasn't seen or maybe even isn't aware of, maybe underrated movies, Hedwig and the Andrew Inch or uh, foreign movies, Amelie, uh, maybe even movies that are kind of well known, but maybe not as highly thought of as I thought. And maybe some movies you haven't even heard of. Uh, I'm Kind of the point of my channel is to get people to watch good movies, yeah. whether it's great movies that you haven't gotten to yet or movies you haven't even heard of. Uh, and, you know, even great movies you haven't gotten to yet, there's going to be some that you're going to end up liking more than others. And I want to give people an idea up front what type it's going to be. Is it going to be serious? Is it going to be funny? Is it going to be romantic? Is yeah. it going to be dark, et cetera, you know? And underrated is a harder category than just films that are up for awards. That's That gives you a starting point. So underrated means you have to think about more what that means and, and take into account what yeah. other people are thinking and things like that. I made a post on Facebook that, about that and exploded to like 100 comments, both people talking about the movies they think are underrated and talking about what it means to be underrated. So it's, it's a ripe territory. I think. Yeah, it's kind of an interesting thing to, to hear what other people think of underrated, whether it's like how it appears on IMDb, how many people bought tickets to see it, what kind of ratings it has, you know, how, what critics think of it. Yeah, there's like it's, it's, everyone's got their own definitions. That's part of what makes it interesting in the first place. So let's see here. Thanks to Nina for her help on The Hedge Knight. We've gotten a lot of great takes from her. I've got a couple of particularly exciting ones today that I'm excited to talk about. Excited things that I'm excited to talk about. Yeah. Report me to the Department of Redundancy Department yet again. I think I've been sent there <laughs> at least twice in the past two weeks. The way the Sworn Sword begins versus the way The Hedge Knight ends, they, they really kind of bleed into each other even though quite a lot of time has passed because it, it sticks with these familiar sort of plot centric ideas uh, while maintaining its its feel its themes of these two characters learning each other and working together and and uh, getting into adventures 
I'll probably mention it when we start that, but I did catch that. How does uh, the hedge night start? It's raining. Yeah. How's the sworn source start? It's a drought. Oh, good call. Good call. <laughs> and how does the third one start? I don't remember. That's uh, we'll have to check on that. Some sort of. I seem to remember it was hot, but I don't know if it was a drought. Maybe it's just humid. So it's like in between. You've got <laughs> yeah. the heat. Of, you've got the heat of the desert, but the humidity of the. <laughs> it's just really windy. <laughs> yeah, you need windy. <laughs> we definitely don't have snow. We know it's not snowing there. So <laughs> Blood Ravens around. So there's definitely going to be a little bit of mist at, at the little at the least. <laughs> So let's start with the reveal. One of the uh, it's a fun moment, of course, when Egg reveals who he is. Uh, there's a lot of clues that he's someone else, but it isn't really something that the plot focuses on. It's not like, who is this guy? It's just kind of out of nowhere. It's it's a lot along the lines of the way George does a lot of mysteries. He doesn't even tell you there's a mystery sometimes. He just gives you the answer that you didn't know there was something in secret all this time. And you're like, oh, this has been a, a mystery this whole time. So that's kind of neat. I think you told me you already knew who Egg was before you read this the first time. Is that right? So it wasn't really a surprise for you? It, correct. Uh, it was still a, uh, I don't know how to say this, an exciting moment when... Uh, was it Raymond giving uh, Donk a rundown of the different princes? Yeah. And just as he's about to mention Egg, Egg bursts in and like. <laughs> yeah, Dunk doesn't really give much thought to the matter. He's not like, I wonder who this kid is. It just kind of goes by. When anytime a Targaryen is revealed, which, you know, there's going to be at least one more <laughs> in the main series. <laughs> <laughs> and perhaps one revealed to not actually be a Targaryen. So we may have the reversal. Like, actually, this guy's not a Targaryen. So we may have that happen. Both of those things happen. One with John, one with young Griff. So it's things like this where it's not just the reveal of egg it's like well george is going to be doing this again is this like a warm-up for him is he practicing the john reveal yeah. is it like how is he going to do this that's that's what i think about because uh, we've are we already know the answer here we already know the secret but we know there's going to be more secrets of this ilk that come into play much bigger ones like when, whenever the reveal with john happens it'll probably be a multi-stage reveal because you got all these different characters that have to react to it. And then John himself has to react to it. So it's not just going to be like this where Dunk is really the only one that reacts to it. Because Arian's like, hey, what happened to your hair, brother? You know? <laughs> 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 so maybe a bit of foreshadowing for the future of, of their story when he says, how many Aegons have been king? And Aegon responds, four Aegons have been king and he'll be the fifth. So, hmm. And if young Griff, if that all plays out, if he's actually crowned, which I think he will be because part of the prophecy around Danny is that she'll slay these lies. And that would be a pretty big lie to slay. Uh, he, if he's crowned, he would be the sixth Aegon. Whether that counts in retrospect is another question, but uh, he is still an egg on, so that's kind of neat. You know, I thought I had about that, uh, not just how many Aegons there have been, but a lot of the other Targaryens and kings. So there's a lot of repeating names, you know, and sometimes it's even hard. I finally started to sort out some of them, you know, but uh, <laughs> it's 
it's kind of how the real world went too. There were so many Charleses and Phillips and Edwards in European history. Uh, I remember the the Daniele Bellelli podcast about uh, Joan of Arc. He, he kind of <laughs> joked about, I know this is hard to follow. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> My favorite example is the show The Last Kingdom and the books and the real history where I like to think I'm good at this. But when they're all just like Alfred and Alfred, I I can't. It's very difficult for me. I finally understand where some people are with A Song of Ice and Fire. Yeah, so it's real history is way Ethelred, worse yeah. than this. That's the thing, folks. Like yeah. all these Aegons and Darons, it's nothing. Like that we're all like how many Kennedys are there? How many Bushes are there? There's lots of them, right? Yeah, that's true. <laughs> This happens, some of this happens, or progresses towards Dunk being in a cell. Something is somewhat familiar to A Song of Ice and Fire POVs. We've had a lot of chapters of characters in cells. This doesn't last very long. He's not in jail very long. It's, it's, it goes pretty quickly. He has this discussion with Egg. Egg apologizes to him uh, for the deception, not realizing it could get Dunk in trouble, which that's kind of a recurring theme, even when nobility or, or trying to be decent sometimes just who they are just their presence uh, has an impact on what's happening around them and sometimes that impact is negative and of course this is an example of that but obviously the biggest thing is you know egg didn't make dunk attack tanzel but he did go get him knowing probably what would happen I guess it's just a no chance, no choice situation, right? That's, uh, yeah. we come back to that. There's this great quote here that is pretty important. I think it's maybe one of the, if we were to rank them, uh, the quotes in this story, this one might fall in the top five for most important, just for the, the many different things it describes, explains, and touches on. Here it is. Dunk looked at him thoughtfully. He knew what it was like to want something so badly that you would tell a monstrous lie just to get near it. Thought you were like me, he said. Might be you are, only not the way I thought. Yeah. So I have a question here. What do y'all think the two uh, ways that they're alike are? The way that Dunk would have thought they were like him, that Egg would have thought, which I think we know, but what is Egg saying here? Well, I, I think- That they're both decent people? Yes, I do think that. I think that he thought that they were, he was an orphan boy like him. Yes. But that's the part that he's not, but he is like a, a you know, a big-hearted guy, one who cares about other people no matter how poor they are and cares about justice. Is that how you interpret it, Sean? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, you know, they I they thought they were alike and that they were low-born or, you know, there's all kinds of ways that they thought they were alike, but realizing there is other ways they are alike that are even more important. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. Good said. That's that is what it comes down to. That's the thing that ultimately I think keeps them together. Obviously, Egg couldn't know that about him at first when he just was trying to get away from Daron and just go to the tournament and just do anything other than hang out with his drunk older brother who's kind of not doing anything. Like he was bored. <laughs> it's not just and he wanted to, you know, it's a lot of things, really. And maybe Egg really just had no one else that he could call to this, but I mean, I think it just shows how how safe Egg felt with Dunk already, how much he's got a good vibe from him. Yeah, he knew that 
this is the man to run to. Like he explained, you know, it comes up during the conversation, like, why didn't you run to the castle? He was like, well, I didn't think I could get there in time. You know, it was so far away. And those are pretty good reasons. You know, the, the woman is being injured in that moment. You definitely don't have much time. I think it was an emotional choice, though, just as much. Yeah, I mean, he he plays it off as that, but I think Egg is a little boy who ran to the person that he thinks would keep him safe. So it might be some post facto justification. He might be like, no, I would have run to him anyway. Yeah, and it made sense. It was like the right call, but I I think it was colored by that. That's a great point. Yeah, that might be... I almost don't want to say this because I don't want to spin it too negatively, but there might have been an amount of selfishness. Egg could have just revealed himself at the moment and ordered those guards, hey... Stand back, let her set her free. I, uh, I, it may or may not have worked, but yeah. he would have had to give up his secret life, That's you know what true. I mean, if, to do that. I agree with that. Um, a lot of that. I think that Egg has enough fear of Arian that he he can't trust he doesn't feel like he can even trust the royal guard right there whether that's that's logical or anything i think it shows how he is very fearful of arian yeah i don't think he wanted to challenge arian without someone to back him up quite possibly but that's a good point because he did like order them to stop but only when dunk was there (laughs) Uh, yeah they ordered him to stop attacking dunk right Right, after dunk had already intervened yeah yeah when they were about to like when arian ordered awful things to happen that's when egg was like okay now i gotta stop the them from cutting his head off or whatever taking out taking all his teeth out when dunk was in trouble then he no longer was worried about his 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 fun life you know yeah i guess maybe his fun life was over anyway if dunk gets killed so <laughs> guilty guilty undertaker also points out strictly speaking arian outranks egg yeah there is that yeah yeah, yeah. absolutely good point i'm sure some of those guards on some level they're aware of the same thing who uh, who was it someone told i can't remember the conversation it was in a game of thrones i think they're like look if Joffrey says, go get his horse, go get his oh, yes, horse. Tyrion. If Joffrey says, yeah. kill all the horses in his stable, come talk to me first. Yeah, because you know? he's not 16 yet. He's not able to. Yeah. You know, they're allowed to overrule even the king because he hasn't reached his age of majority. That's what Tyrion's point was there. And the king's guard in question is like, well, but uh, I can't say no to the king. He's like, yeah, you can. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's literally the law. You can in certain circumstances. So. But, of course, there's more to it. Like, you don't want to piss off a king who's going to be able to do whatever he wants when he's 16. So there's, they're thinking ahead. But anyway, we're, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Good thing Arian was never king because that's exactly the kind of thing that would happen. So what's interesting, a, a particularly strong thing is here, um, Dunn continues to think about justice and, and blame and things like that. But he at no point seems to worry about himself. He doesn't really worry about the consequences until they're broached. Like until Baylor's like, yeah, you might lose your hand, maybe your foot. He doesn't really think about the consequences for himself. He's still even in jail thinking about other people. He's like, damn, I might've gotten in Tanzel in bigger trouble. And that is a really big sign of the kind of person he is in his own internal monologue. He's still not thinking about himself. That's the kind of thing that POV structure gives you that you can't get from a narrator. You can't be certain that this character is actually thinking these things, right? You can't be sure that it's honest if it's coming from dialogue. But when you have your their internal monologue, you know it's real as much as it ever can be. You know, they could be lying to themselves. There's unreliable self-narration, I suppose. But it's as close to the truth as we can ever get, I think. And I think that's something that's worth 
uh, focusing on at times like this when it really speaks to their character that, that we're getting at. We've mentioned it a few times, but Dunk also thinks about the horses at that moment. Right. Even the lesser beings, quote unquote lesser. I mean, I think yeah. it's fair to call horses lesser beings. But, you know, he's thinking about the suffering of anything, any anyone that means anything yeah. to him. And uh, that's a, it takes a big heart to do that. Uh, so he's wondering whether this is what's going to happen to them. But he still doesn't regret doing it. He doesn't regret, oh, I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have stepped in. It, no, it doesn't even seem to cross his mind. Which just reminds us of, of Brienne, again, just to, to someone who does the right thing. Consequences don't even, it's not that they weigh the consequences and decide it's better to do the right thing. It's they don't even, they just do the right thing. It's just a snap decision. <laughs> There's yeah. no weighing. It's just instantly acting. It's almost the same instinct you might have to like, pull your hand away from a hot stove. You don't think, well, if I keep my hand here, it'll be burned. You know, <laughs> you just instantly do it. Yeah, it's like, you know? this is wrong. I must do something. And when you're dunk, I guess you maybe have a little more freedom to interfere or to feel like you can do something because you're a, a large person, you know, like that's what it probably like if egg yeah. was the size of dunk, he may not have run off to get dunk. He might've been like, look, I'm almost seven feet tall, so I can do this myself. He would have just tackled Aaron. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like Aaron probably wouldn't have picked on him so much if he was seven feet tall. But <laughs> anyway, yeah, so he still doesn't think of it as a, a mistake, even when Baylor states the obvious and says, you know, it's never a wise idea to strike a king's grandson. He still doesn't really, yeah, I shouldn't have done that. No, he's still like, nope. Right is Trump's might, et cetera. That always comes first. And I, I love that. So here's another really interesting quote for us to, to play with for a minute. Hedge night is the truest kind of night, Dunk, the old man had told him a long, long time ago. Other knights serve the lords who keep them or from whom they hold their lands. But we serve where we will for men whose causes we believe in. Every knight swears to protect the weak and innocent. We keep the vow best, I think. Queer how strong that memory seemed. Duck had quite forgotten those words, and perhaps the old man had as well toward the end. Yeah, let's start with that. What does that last line mean there? That's very peculiar, very yeah. mysterious. Like, what was Arlen slipping in his no in his honor? Uh... Yeah, there's kind of two two parts to this quote to think about. One is the idea of a hedge knight, at least potentially having better ability to be a, a true knight. They're less beholden to the will of some lord than they are to their vows to protect the innocent you know i think we've even mentioned this before if some if joffrey tells some knight to go kill a cat or whatever the knight just does it but uh, normally at a hedge and i'm like i'm not killing a cat you know uh, that's pretty much what happens a, with micah right an infant yeah. uh, you know yeah i feel like part of here is that arlen would have now been at the stage where he just wouldn't he wouldn't help a cat okay dunk feels that you should help the cat Whereas yeah. a king's guard feels like if someone tells you to kill the cat, you kill the cat. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that, that's the other thing here is the fact that Dunk, one, had almost forgotten the words himself, but wonders if Arlen had two. It makes you wonder if toward the end, if Arlen, maybe his standards were slipping. He was too old, you know, or he was too desperate or too frustrated or becoming bitter. I don't want to be too negative, but something made Dunk think this. So maybe Arlen serve some lord that was kind of crappy uh i mean desperation is a good point like he's getting older he's not going to have as much value to a lot of lords that like the job of like if he's supposed to protect people like is he even capable of doing that you know it's 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 a very 
uh, anxious lifestyle, not having like any means of retirement. I mean, it's sort of like <laughs> you just expect to die in the line of duty, I guess. But yee, that's that's tough to think about, and it's tough to to reckon with if you try to put yourself in their place. Dunk is nowhere near that spot himself. He's young and and, and healthy, so he may he may lack that perspective at this point. He may that may be part of why he doesn't understand it. But also, he's just young and not very worldly in the first place. So, but like along lines of what you're saying, the hedge knights are also among the common folk more often just the people you have more conversations with they're not sitting in the high halls and having their dinners with the fancy people dunk is constantly among people of a similar socioeconomic status so he's more aware of what their day-to-day struggles are so that's a great point it's something to back up what arlen is saying there that they may keep those vows best because perhaps they're more associated with those troubles they see they're confronted with these issues that the true knights are supposed to be solving sitting in a castle can give you some detachment from a lot of these issues and that gets into this very important under the radar or not under the radar it actually comes front and center here towards the end Baylor's. Uh, loaded question, but very poignant question of how, you know, so I ask you again, Sir Duncan the Tall, how good a knight are you truly? So there's good knights and there's good knights. And in this case, Baylor's asking, how good are you in quotes, meaning like, how good are you at fighting? Because ultimately that is, I mean, that's what we just touched on. If Arlen isn't capable of fighting anymore, then is he really even a hedge knight? And then that, that gets into the desperation angles and all that. So how does this line resonate with you sean it seems pretty important doesn't it yeah uh and i i also think in a i don't know in a sort of an abstract way he might mean how good as in how uh upright or moral or whatever are you if you consider a couple things one if baylor really does have faith in the gods like Mm. if you're really a good knight dunk you know then the gods will be on your side for this this trial by combat are you really a good knight and also maybe i don't think it's come yet to the trial of seven but on some level if you're really a good knight will you be able to get other swords to come to your side you know i don't think he could admit that here because that's not happening yet but you could see how it could also be a factor and Yes, Dunk is on both counts. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he maybe hasn't proved it to himself yet. I mean, yeah. he hasn't gotten yeah. into a fight to the death yet. Uh, he certainly is about to, and it works out. Yeah, I mean, he isn't skilled. He isn't a, a particularly skilled knight, but he just has such raw talent that it's yeah. hard to beat him. Yeah, like if you're Baylor and you look at him, you're like... I bet he could be good. If he's untrained, he might not be very good, but you could see that which is like he might be really good because yeah. you see that strength and size. You're <laughs> like, well, I definitely wouldn't just wave him away. <laughs> uh, now, Arlen, yeah, like some older guy and is, you know, that doesn't look very physically imposing. You might not be so intimidated by that, but this is, this is, you can't just sneeze at a seven footer, right? <laughs> Uh, so, and this is something that goes back to the absolute beginning of a Game of Thrones. If you're good at killing, you can get away with a lot. I mean, talk about being ordered to kill a cat. I brought up briefly the, the question of Micah, right? The butcher's boy. Sandor basically ordered to kill him and does it mostly unquestioningly. But then later, of course, we find out Sandor's 
somewhat bitter over the whole thing. Maybe not specifically over Micah. He kind of doesn't talk about that too much. But you don't get the you don't get the feeling that he liked it, even though he has this bravado about it, because he, he comes back with all this stuff about how knights are good at killing. That's what makes a knight. That's what makes a knight. He's insistent on it. He thinks the rest is all nonsense. The rest is bull. And if you if you're good at killing, that's all that matters. That's the look at who how his brother has advanced so high. His brother's the absolute worst at knightly ideals. But because he's good at killing, he's at the top. And so to, to Sandor, that proves everything. You're like, well, this is, you can see. <laughs> Be- Part of that too is not just your physical fighting ability, which is a big factor, but your willingness to do it. I, I mentioned that before about the idea of who wins a fight is a person who realizes it's really a fight first. Yeah. And especially in a lot of these scenarios, sometimes the fight doesn't happen if you know the other person. If you know that this person will kill a little kid, they're definitely willing to kill you. Like yeah. maybe they won't be able to, but they're going to freaking try. They're not going <laughs> to. I think about that scene in uh, Unforgiven mm. when Clint Eastwood says, yeah, I'm Will Money. I've killed women and children and anything that walks and crawls. And now I'm here to kill you. you know, <laughs> <laughs> and that's something that's a really interesting debate amongst the Kingsguard. Like what type of knight is right for the Kingsguard? Is it someone who's the best fighter or is it someone who's the most loyal or is it some combination of the two? Uh, and that that's a fantastic conversation that comes up between Griff and young Griff, which is y- Griff is not happy that Duck is being added to the Kingsguard because he doesn't think he's a good enough fighter. But young Aegon, I think I kind of agree with young Aegon. It's like, yeah, but he'll give his life for me. I he'll think you need a mix. Hmm? I think you need a good mix. Yeah, I agree. I think you need a good mix. If they're just good fighters, but you can't count on them. And what good is that, right? <laughs> if but if they will throw their life away to give you a few minutes to escape... Well, that might be worth more than a skilled sword. And I I think that you should throw in someone who is just plain honorable, just plain a good knight in the sense, a true knight, to, you know, help keep the other knights a little honest. Yeah, you don't want them to all turn into, like, the culture of the Kingsguard to be... Yeah. Yeah, like, that can be a thing. I mean, this is all nice to want, but it's hard to find someone that fits all this. Yeah. Even if you find someone with all these things... Also, they have to give up their inheritance. Yeah, it's a very political thing. There's tons of families that want their kid to be in the King's Guard. So you're kind of slighting them if their kid is is good, almost good enough. And and the whole thing is the Kingsguard are like believed to be the finest knights in the realm. But what makes the finest knight is what we're here discussing. And clearly there is no straightforward basis for that. There is no universally agreed upon definition for what makes the best knight. If you ask Sandor, well, we just explained that. If you ask Brienne, she would not agree with Sandor. She would include the fighting prowess, of course, because that is part of it. You have to have the ability to protect the people you want to protect. But her, her definition would be more nuanced, for example, even though she's been through so much. You could even think about, like, even if you try to ignore political aspects or chivalrous aspects, one might, knight might be really good at jousting, but not that good at swordplay. One vice versa, which is better, which is more important. And even if you ignore all the fighting abilities, think about just discretion. Mm. Think about just like keeping quiet about things you hear in court or what you know is going on in a, a, a treaty or an alliance or a breaking of one or et cetera, et cetera. You know. Some of that, I agree with you, discretion, and I wasn't thinking about that exactly, but some of that is covered under loyalty. Yeah, discretion. But <laughs> you still have to, even if you, uh, I think I say this, you could be very loyal. You could be a great fighter and be very loyal and very honorable. 
but not very wise. You could just be, you could just make mistakes. You could just be incompetent or, or, or yeah, you could not uh, realize. Or yeah, something, you could not you know? realize yeah. that something is is how important yeah. it is. Perfect yeah. example of that comes in Ariane too, when she's with these lesser members of the Golden Company, and when she's trying to get information out of them, and one of them is chatty, and she gets, I think, chains is chatty. And she gets some information out of him. And then it's contrasted by when she meets Lysona Mar, And she's like, okay, this is a guy who knows how to keep quiet. This is a guy who knows, who knows how to talk without saying anything. This is a guy who's not going to give any, away any, any information by accident. So you really, that, that contrast is really brought out, uh, drawn out on the page there. And I think that's, that's a, exactly what you're talking about here. Daron, the dreamer, we skipped over him before to try to talk about him all at once. I see him as sort of a combination of Tyrion and Rhaegar. His dragon dreams are more frequent and intense than what we've seen from just about anyone. It's not as if there's a lot of examples of dragon dreamers. Certainly there's plenty, but you're generally looking at that from a... Throughout history, there's plenty. There's not like a lot of them around at any given time. And the most famous is probably Daenys the dreamer, but we don't really know anything about her personality. For Maybe she was... Also a heavy drinker, you know, somebody that was tormented by the intensity of these dreams. But she wrote them down or maybe dictated them or something. So she certainly seemed to have a little more of a handle on what was going on. Maybe it was more of an outlet for her. But also, very more importantly, much more importantly, her dreams were taken seriously. They listened to her. They left Valyria because of her dreams. They She foresaw the doom. So that's a pretty big difference. What I mean is that you're validated. This poor Daron guy, he has dreams that come true. No one seems to care. (laughs) There's there's no, there's no like Makar's like, well, what do you think is going to happen next, son? No, this is like a, this is a burden on him. I wonder how much Valyria prized it, understood it, one, and if they did, why did no one else listen to Danny's? Or did they not? Or did the Targaryens keep this quiet? Yeah, it's a great question. And I suspect that they didn't put a lot of stock into it. Because otherwise, how come none of the other families got out of there? On You know, they yeah, laughed exactly. the Targaryens for leaving. So it seems like this was an exception rather than a normal. Or it wasn't. I, I have to wonder, is it possible that not all Valyrian families even have similar abilities? It's entire. Yeah, I would guess that's very likely as a possibility. It seems like if all the Dragonlord families had dragon dreams, I don't know, that seems like a lot. Um, I mean, yeah, if all the Dragonlord families had dragon dreams, they would put more stock into it. Yeah, and and you wouldn't only have had one family stay and put, I think. I think more families would have left. So I think it it's circumstantial. But I think it's pretty strong circumstantial evidence that this was an exception. We also just don't have a lot of other examples of the dreams being taken seriously by too many people uh, through other dreamers like Damon II. This is setting up the third story, this Daron's dreams like Blood Raven's going to flat out say, well, some Targaryens have dragon dreams. So why not a few Blackfires? They have the same bloodlines. That makes sense, right? But did anyone support Damon II when he came over? Only the people in Westeros, his, the rest of the Blackfires didn't support this dreamer guy. Bittersteel didn't support him. So, yeah, the long term seems to indicate that most of the time these dreams are not listened to by the people around these dreamers, even when they're a royal. So this is a little unusual. You've got this guy who's rich and powerful, but still... This is still a handicap of some kinds viewed as a negative. So 
It's kind of unusual. To be fair, there are other factors. Like he is also of questionable honor and he's alcoholic. So it might be a little easier for them to blow him off. If Baylor was having these dreams, he might have taken him more serious. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Potentially. Um, It just, I guess I just, what I'm getting at is it doesn't seem like they've ever throughout the centuries ever tried to make it part of their identity. You'd think that maybe one of these dreamers or two of these dreamers or some of them wouldn't be, you know, someone who is a, dishonorable alcoholic uh some yeah, it makes you wonder maybe what the cause and effect is yeah like uh i think and this maybe is makes you wonder if it's the gods playing their games like we'll yeah. give you the alcoholic <laughs> the, <laughs> you get the special ability yeah no one will believe you well that is <laughs> this will create some irony that's a really good point because that is what we're told about the gifts of the old gods right it's it's generally quote unquote, given to those who have some sort of physical ailment or some sort of already existing condition. So, hey, you're not like it's almost seems like a random connection to be made in a vacuum. But when you line it up like with the old God stuff, it it fits quite well. And that's something we're very used to seeing something that's true about the old gods thematically also line up on the, you know, the fire and ice things line up a lot of times, I guess is what I'm saying. But it's, you're right, too, Sean, that there's more to it than just this, though. Uh, for example, the seven kingdoms are overwhelmingly devout towards the faith or worshipers of the faith. So if you have the royal family like listening to dragon dreams, yeah, they're not going to they're not going to be cool with that. There's definitely some societal reasons to keep that on the down low. The other thing I want to get at here is it just doesn't seem like it's very good for your mental health to be able to see the future randomly like sleep. Would sleep really be restful? If you're having this happen all the time, constantly seeing the future, but not knowing how to interpret it, like he sees Dunk and he's like, oh, God, I've seen you in my dreams. And he doesn't know exactly what's going to happen. But something terrible? What do you do? Uh, You just like get away from me? (laughs) I mean, you can have non-prophetic dreams and your dreams will cause you to not have good sleep and haunt you and be exhausting. That's what I'm saying. When they're real, it must be just all the more worse. Yeah. So, ah, it's it's hard to fathom just how bad that would be. I mean, it's enough to drive you to drink, maybe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And here's another aspect. We're really getting into sympathy for the Daron here. If he's seeing the future regularly, he sees done. Well, I mean, well, he is seeing the future regularly. He sees this calamity coming from Dunk. Well, think about this. What's coming in, in six months, the great spring sickness is coming in six months. Then there's another rebellion coming in a few years. There's all sorts of Targaryens are going to die. Is he seeing this stuff now? Is he dreaming about it now? Is he already seeing his father's death? Is he seeing his own death? Is he seeing like how far in advance <laughs> do we do these dreams happen? Like Danny saw the doom 12 years ahead at least they moved 12 years ahead at least she had the dreams before that right they didn't just wake up the next day it's like i had a dream about the doom okay pack up now <laughs> no it's probably a process like okay i had that dream again you know they probably finally believed it so quite possibly he's dreaming of the death of his family the great spring sickness more rebellions and think about this he winds up marrying valar's wife valar the same kid we see at the end here valar's named hand after his father's death. But of course, he's only hand for a few months because the sickness gets him. So he marries his cousin's wife. What about when he met her for the first time? Did he have some sort of premonition? Is he dreaming of her like, whoa, I'm going to I'm going to marry her someday. That means I know my cousin's going to die. Like, whoa, <laughs> like it's it just <laughs> blows your mind. And none of it's good. Right. 
Ugh. Yeah. I don't know how you would deal with this burden. Like it, it's pretty constantly shown in media and fiction and, and fantasy that the ability to see the future is not a good thing. You know, I've seen people speculate on like, what POV do you wish you could have had from uh, Song of Ice and Fire or whatever? Daron's might have been a good one. It would be hard to write, but yeah, it would be very yeah. interesting. Yeah, George would have to make these decisions on which visions to put in there and how to portray them in a dream state. Yeah. By the tricky. way, can I say we got a good thing in the chat about Danies? Yeah. From a child of Valyria. Oh, well, uh, she would know. I can't mm -hmm. imagine where... I can't imagine moving out on a dream of my neighbor's maiden daughter. <laughs> I hear you, right? You just, just like how many things move. did she prove she could foresee before they're like, okay, well, she foresaw that, 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 and that. So, yeah, we better, <laughs> we better listen. <laughs> but you'd think that maybe Daron could ha offer that sort of proof too, but it's just, it seems the dreams are too vague for him to to know uh, it almost seems like if you're gonna have these visions they should be more clear or it's just tormenting to only see like a glimmer like a, a brief glimpse behind the curtains it may also be that a lot of times he pieces together what the dream was after the event happened and so if he tries to tell people they're like yeah sure if he had told them ahead of time they might have been like hey wait a minute but he might not piece it together until after the fact so it keeps people from really putting too much stock in it this might be the first time He's piecing it together ahead of time. Yeah, I wonder if after this, he'll, he will put more stock into it and be a little pushier with bringing it up to someone and maybe still get brushed away. You know mm. what I mean? That's yeah. a good point. Yeah, you wonder if he ever, like, I, I wonder if he's talked to his brother about it much, Eamon, because Eamon's you know, now off and gone. Like, they, Eamon was gone at a young age. You, you think that their relationship could have been at their, didn't really have a chance to get going in a way that would have, maybe given uh, Daron some relief from all this, some understanding, because Eamon later will express on his own deathbed that, you know, all my brothers dreamed of dragons and it, you know, it tormented them all or whatever. And and this is, he, he means that in a variety of ways. But of course, this is the most literal of that. You know, Egg's dreams of dragons may have been also fantastical, but he, he literally tried to bring them back with the Summerhall incident. A couple more thoughts. One, down the road, Dunk himself make of aaron's dreams more validity oh yeah um since he knew that one time yeah you're right um which also might make egg additionally aaron might at some point after having a dream try to do something to stop it and it happened anyway mm. he might have even felt like he caused it by trying to stop it i can also see that and destiny versus decisions is another theme that george plays around with a lot so i could see that being another reason like he stopped trying to tell people or stop it or do something about it he just because it makes it i worse. just have to accept it wow yeah that would it might make it worse or might it feel more like i caused it rather than just i knew about it you know? that's a very good said right there i think you're onto something with that because that also really explains why he just acts like he's helpless like he's a he seems like a helpless person like I, there's nothing i can do i just drink and i'm like even the way he expresses himself sarcastically even is like that he's like well i i looked for my brother but he wasn't in the bottom of my cup so i didn't find him like this is he didn't he obviously yeah. isn't trying right and that's this is this is yeah. a guy who's given up on life and that that's that really fits well with someone who's just like well nothing matters anything i do just makes it worse so yeah for a man who's given up i think that's a great theory as to maybe why yeah, I mean, I could see how that would uh, make you a bit of a nihilist, just being like, 
yeah, fate and destiny are all, I can't change anything in the world. It's all just going to happen. Especially if you, especially if he's seen his own death or something mm-hmm. like that. I mean, that would just make it even worse. Or, or like we said, like he's, he sees this great series of deaths coming for his family and maybe he's amongst it. And he can't tell. It's, it's bad. And it's, it reminds us a bit of Rhaegar, too, someone who is very burdened by prophecy. Now, and Rhaegar is another character we don't actually know very well. We've seen Daron on screen more than we've seen Rhaegar. So <laughs> tells you something mm-hmm. right there. Yeah. Uh, but Rhaegar was fascinated by Summerhall, perhaps obsessed by it. There's maybe some supernatural element to that. He may have had dreams. He was certainly, certainly felt this. He was melancholic. He didn't have a sense of humor. Daron's sense of humor is very sarcastic. Uh, he does have a sense of humor, but it's right. It's it's the self-deprecating, cynical type, and uh, so that is a, a strong parallel. That's why I said Tyrion and Rhaegar, like Rhaegar, the burden of prophecy, um, being highborn, and you know not being capable of some of the things that the world needs from you. And then Tyrion is, of course, that's a little more straightforward. The drinking, the the constantly chasing sex workers, the disappointment to your father <laughs> the uh the hair that isn't quite the same color as the rest of your family even just lots of little things like that of course the sense of humor too that's that's it really does have a similar sense of humor to Tyrion, doesn't he <laughs> yeah i was gonna say you were being really rough on them real mean until you brought up the sense of humor that's one <laughs> redeeming quality <laughs> hey i'm not the one who made the parallels i'm just pointing to them <laughs> <laughs> but yeah i think it's important like you to have this ability, this burden of prophecy, you to handle that, you need a strong personality. And it just doesn't seem like maybe Daron just doesn't have it. Now, maybe I'm just not giving him enough credit. It's just that hard to handle. Rhaegar, maybe it's similar. Rhaegar seems like he's a little stronger. He's able to handle this this burden more, although it didn't work out for him. So Melisandre handled it, handles it all right. Yeah, Melisandre. See, that's a good example. Melisandre is someone who handles it pretty well as far as like the the burden of it. Maybe she isn't interpreting. Yeah, she might not interpret as well. She might mis- <laughs> make mistakes. But yeah, she's not. She hasn't turned to depression and alcohol. You know? Right. And she is very focused. She's like, nope, save humanity. Right or wrong. There is nobody more focused on it than her. So you got to give her props for that, I think. <laughs> and she may have gone more struggle in her youth to to gain independence, if you will, whereas yeah. Aaron's been cuddled, coddled, you know, so. I mean, she also wanted these abilities. They weren't thrust upon her. She had, you know. She's ambitious where Aaron doesn't seem to be. Yeah, well, I mean, she was given away as a slave, as a child. I guess it's not entirely clear what she... Yeah, I don't know how much choice she had in learning to read fires or anything like that. I I have to think that you probably had choice in what line of work you went into within the temple and what you were naturally talented at. And she claims to be one of the best at flame readings. Yeah, so. so I feel like that, you know, maybe they just like they go through some tests and she just is naturally really good. So they're like, OK, you're going to be a priestess. Yeah, it's a very similar concept to what we we're just talking about with knights. The the knights who rise the highest are the ones who are the best at fighting chivalry. That helps. Other things matter. But ultimately, it's your skill that really carries the most weight. And that would seem to be true here as well with the red priestesses and priests. So. Uh, as well as it is with these princes and princelings and, and all the rest. Uh, here's another quote. I do not need to be reminded of my son's failings, brother. He has only 18 years. He can change. 
he will change, God's be damned, or I swear I'll see him dead. We don't know exactly when. Careful what you wish for. Yeah, <laughs> we don't know exactly when Darren died, but it was via STD, apparently. And he did die before his father. So we don't know whether it was a lot before his father or just a few years, but it was definitely after his father was crowned. But his father ruled for about 12 years, and we're not sure when in that reign it happened. So it's pretty bad. Yeah, that's another thing we talked about. Nina brings it up here as well. Makar is very intimidating. Like, we compare him to Stannis, and Stannis is pretty intimidating, but I think Makar is more intimidating. Like, just picture him in that armor, the way his armor is described. It's, like, one of the most intimidating armor sets I've ever heard of, and it's just boosted by the fact that you know who's wearing it. And Makar is just so prickly and proud and, and big, intense, I mean, the Amok art where George, you know, told Amok how to draw him shows Makar as this this big, buff, like, square-jawed man of a king. Yeah, he's a tank. <laughs> yeah, tank is the right yeah. word. Yeah, so even, like, even Arian is pretty mild uh, and behaving around when his father's around. So it kind of gives you a sense of even Arian is intimidated by by Ma- Daddy Makar here. So that's where you wonder. We don't have a comparison for Stannis there because Stannis doesn't have a, a son. Stannis, the way he treats Serene is more like a dutiful. You know, he doesn't have a lot of... He doesn't really have warmth towards hardly anyone, really. But you got a sense that if Stannis had a son, he'd be real hard on him, don't you think? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he'd be like, no, you got to live up to this and that and this. And Stannis doesn't understand weakness. Like, he, he wouldn't understand it coming from a child of his body even less. I would, <laughs> I would think he would be even less uh, understanding or, or nuanced about it. So that's something to think about. What would it be like to have the burden of a guy like that as your dad while also having these dreams and this intensity, like, I just can't fathom. I'm like, I, I, it's hard to feel sorry for a guy with his much privilege, but I do feel pretty sorry for Daron, given all this other stuff. He could have made more of his life, but maybe not. His mental health is just that. Can't make that assumption. I, I don't know what it's like to have dreams like that. You should try it, and then you'll know. <laughs> <laughs> So it's hard to compare. Yeah, we're going to stick a lance in you, because you, you, you said you couldn't relate to that either. <laughs> Wow. Was... If you dream about having a lance stuck in you, Aziz, <laughs> I don't know. You better have a drink. <laughs> <laughs> so, of course, this proceeds now to the recruiting of, of members for his his group of uh, seven. This is pretty neat. It's not a common thing. A little more on this later, but the Laughing Storm says this is the first trial of seven in a century. He says, I suspect it's going to become a famous event. Uh, or he suspects it will be because of that, which is probably part of why he wants to be involved, because he wants to be, you know, it's a good way to be in the history books. And these uh, these these nobles are always uh, thinking about things like that. Fame is part of their parlance of what they're looking for. So there's there was a little more irony here with uh, Stefan Fossaway, wasn't there, Sean? Yeah, he had told uh, he had told Dunk. I, I think I've got the quote here. You have one fossil way, at least the right one. <laughs> <laughs> Not so much. <laughs> In the end, maybe he did have the right one. <laughs> yeah, he did. He got the right one. The, the wrong was on the other side. Yeah. <laughs> and it was nice to hear that it seemed like Raymond came out ahead in their fighting, too. He's like, I think I broke some of his ribs and Raymond himself seemed unhurt. So. All right. <laughs> he may have been the better knight in both ways. Right. <laughs> the better fighter and the yeah, honorable yeah. guy. 
win one for the good guys there. So I really wonder, this is a big, big question for me. What drives Baylor to do this? Like he knows it's risky. He knows it's justified. He knows that Dunk is, at least he's, at least he's convinced himself based on talking to Dunk. Still, this is, I mean, I don't think he has, like, I'm not suggesting an ulterior motive. I don't think he's like trying to like get his brother in a position where he can kill him or something. Like nothing like that. Not even, that's not even remotely a possibility in my mind. But what is, what, does he have an angle? Is he trying to like think ahead to being king and try to set an example? Is he trying to like get more knights to be like him and be more chivalrous by loudly standing up for someone who can't stand up for themselves? How do you interpret this? It's really interesting. I have, real quick, I have one question to add on to that before Sean answers. Is there any chance that he wanted, I mean, I think it's a bunch of those reasons, to be clear. I don't think it's just one reason. But is there any chance part of those reasons was that Daron was in the fight and had to fight and Baylor didn't really want him killed and he felt that Arian might actually be happy if Daron was killed? Hmm. Well, Rather than trying to kill a brother, he was trying to mitigate the chances of a brother being killed. Hmm. A cousin, really. Putting you know. the danger, taking on some of the danger himself. Yeah, I think that's that's an interesting idea for sure. That could be. That could have been in his mind. What do you think, Sean? Again, it's it's there's so many reasons. I I gotta believe, especially the little bit we know about Baylor, which is almost all positive. Yes, he seems to just be perfect in every way, right? And. uh you got to imagine he was up all night plotting all the pieces of this together. So one piece might be, there may be a little bit of a gamble. If I take the other side, that might be enough to get Arian to back down. It might just be done with. As soon as I appear on the other side, he may have like, oh, all right, fine. I didn't know you were that serious about it. Forget the whole thing, right? It's almost giving Arian an out to not have to follow through with this. I kind of wonder if Aaron might have been a little scared to fight Dunk in the first place, and that's why he wanted the trial by seven mm-hmm. and not heads-up combat. It, one, uh, if he's not only afraid to fight Dunk heads-up, but also might know that Dunk can't gather six other knights. But now that that's happened, Baylor's like, ugh. You know, you know, Baylor was not happy about <laughs> uh, Arian insisting on the trial by seven. Yes. He's like... Uh, this is a seldom called. It's an ancient thing. We don't normally do this, but technically you have the right, you know. So Baylor's like, well, now that he's done this, you know, what's my next move? You know, so I could see a million angles of how he looked at this. Some might be very straightforward, like it's the right thing to do. He's just being chivalrous. He might have that same uh, instinct to do the right thing that Donk and Brian have. Yeah. It might be a gamble to nip it in a bud before the combat even happens. That maybe Arian will just back down. He probably knew Ar- Darren was like looking for an excuse to back down already. You know, I knew Darren wasn't serious about fighting to the death, right? Yeah. Uh, so he might need to be setting the example. He might want to put Arian in his place for the killing that horse and then attacking a girl is like, geez, yeah. I can't fight with him. <laughs> Dunk's kind of right here. you know. He doesn't want to be seen to not give justice for that. Like if he's going to be king, he doesn't want people to be able to do that sort of thing. Yeah, they can't. Attack a woman and just get away with it. Yeah, they can't associate Baylor with Arian's actions there. Yeah. And in the inverse yeah. of what I was saying in terms of Baylor uh, maybe thinking he could mitigate things in the Trial of Seven, I've always wondered if there's any chance that you, you mentioned Arian, maybe he was afraid or had some, you know, leeriness there. I've wondered if he chose it because he knew Daron would have to be part of it and Arian 
wants his bro- is that Daron is ahead of him in the line of succession. Yeah. Like he yeah, Daron should be dead. That I I feel like Arian does have that in his mind. I I, I don't like him, so I don't trust him. It didn't occur to me, but the more more I think about it, I think you're right. I think that is like at least another part of the angle that Arian can shoot. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that way, Arian is not a kinslayer. He isn't involved at all, but Daron is not a good fighter enough that it's it's entirely yeah. possible that he is killed. Or that Arian can even be the one to kill him and no one will ever know, but it hasn't been clear enough that Arian would go that far. To add on to what you were saying, Sean, as well, the idea that he may have thought there would be someone backing down, he may have thought to just his entering may have changed the picture. Uh, Nina suggested a similar thing, and our over on Flick, Stefan B. had a question for you, Sean. I would like to hear Sean's managing and ruling-oriented thoughts on this. The whole affair was extremely poorly handled by the rulers, in my opinion. The hand of the king, dead, and risk of three Kingsguard and four Targaryens coming to harm. Two of them very important, Baylor and Makar, over a minor incident between a loose cannon Targaryen and a hedge knight. Surely there must have been a better way to resolve this. Trial by seven is part of the law, so that is maybe maybe there isn't a way. But what do you think, Sean? Is that is that kind of how you see it, or are they kind of trapped by their own honor, or maybe there was another way? You know, there might have been another way. I have to think for a quick second about this. Uh, one of my thoughts is I don't know if this was necessarily a minor incident. Like maybe by itself, it's a minor incident. But when you add together all the stuff that Arian's done, maybe it's not as minor. Mm. Might not necessarily be minor in the first place, assuming that there is some, assuming that Baylor believes in chivalry, assuming he wants his family to be honorable, like, doggone it, Arian, you can't do this, you know? Like, I have to do something about this. Letting this go, this one incident, maybe isn't that bad, but it sets a precedent. How many more times does Arian get to do this without Baylor doing something about it? At some point, it's kind of his role to put this in check, and it may on some level seem minor right now, but as a whole, he I, I, I feel like he's obliged. Now, if he is obliged to do something about it, I don't know if like having royal family fight to the death maybe isn't the thing to do, but it they, they are trying to treat this, I don't know quite how to say this, but like by the books, they're like trying to like <laughs> use whatever laws of the land they have, and this is what is coming. I, I think it would be worse for Baylor to say, never mind, we're not going to follow the law. You just have to do what I say. That's kind of dictatorial, you know, mm. and I don't think that's his character or a good precedent for him to set. I mean, it's a, it's a tough situation and maybe there's a better way. I can't immediately think of one. Yeah. Baylor might've been up all night trying to think of one himself. <laughs> uh, I don't know. There's so many things he's trying to balance here. Like Ashea said, it's hard to, it's hard to get at what Baylor would think is the most important thing. And, and uh, yeah, we really don't know what's in his head here. A lot of our Tanzel talk will be the beginning of the Sworn Sword because he thinks about her so much, having not found her. So we've got a few notes on that that we'll save for then. But I do want to say it's a kind of a micro tragedy <laughs> that she leaves before seeing Dunk win. <laughs> it's like, dang it, she's he wins. Oh man, <laughs> she doesn't even get to see that. It's so. Oh. But you get it, right? You understand why she left when it's laid out for him. He doesn't even quite, he's not like, he's disappointed, but he doesn't think she made a bad decision. She's like, oh, yeah, yeah, get away while you can. We can maybe save it more for a later talk with all the other stuff that would surround this, but think how differently the whole story might have played out if she had stayed. 
Oh wow, yeah. She sh- would have. Would he have still gone on to be in the King's Guard? Would he have wanted to marry her? Would he still have cared as much about being Dunks? You know, uh, about Egg being his squire? Or would she, he have been happy to settle down? You know, that's a good point. Good point. So you cited a, a quote here that I think is absolutely worth discussing. Let's uh, let's go to that. This is when uh, he got in the shield from from Pate. Now that Dunk held it in his hands, it seemed all wrong. The star was falling. What sort of sigil was that? Would he fall just as fast? And sunset heralds night? I should have stayed with the chalice, he said miserably. It had wings, at least, to fly away. And Sir Arlen said the cup was full of faith and fellowship and good things to drink. <laughs> what do you do with all that? That's, that's a yeah. powerful quote. So, one, it, it kind of shows like his... his his lack of confidence. Uh, you know, there's a thing, I don't know enough about it, so I don't want to speak on it too much, but it, there's something called imposter syndrome yeah. where the idea is someone, even it's expert or experienced, they might be at something, they still feel like they haven't earned it or they don't belong or whatever. And sometimes I feel like Dunk might have that. He He's almost always looking at himself in, in, in a negative light, you know? And uh, additionally, by the way, it's it's, there's a lot to this. This is maybe a moment of him getting out from under Sir Arlen's wings, right? He's got to be his own. He has to accept this is his own sigil. This is his own path. Also, he's not flying away. He never flies away. Like he, <laughs> he, and it almost shows like the, the Ned quote where, you know, you have to be scared to be brave in the first place. The fact that he considers it makes it better, makes it more valuable or honorable that he does stay time and again. You know, it, he isn't just completely dumb bumbling into these things. He knows it's dangerous. He knows he's risking his life, but he does it anyway. Side note, another clue here. Uh, we keep hinting. I'm trying to save it to the end, but we keep passing these little moments of evidence back and forth about whether Dunk might be a knight. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. Uh, one of my thoughts is that maybe Arlen was just blind drunk and didn't even remember it the next day and that uh oh. and, and so dunk doesn't think it counts and this is a, you know his arlen's cup is a chalice you know what i mean like he, there's a few hints that arlen might be alcoholic and it mm. uh it could give dunk reason to question the validity of his knighting but that's a good point yeah it's interesting there's there's like certainly people do tend to frame the question was he knighted or not whereas you're raising the question was maybe the nighting was incomplete or something was wrong with it, which is what you're saying here. And that's a really good third option. Yeah. I think that's very much worth consideration. Yeah. Not that Dunk just straight up lied about being knighted, that maybe Dunk knows it didn't count, even if it really happened. You know? Yeah. With- and all kinds of reasons he might think it didn't count. Maybe Arlen was drunk. Maybe he knows there's supposed to be a septum there. Maybe Arlen hadn't been honorable in his final days. Maybe, yeah. you know, et cetera, et cetera. Maybe he wakes up and he's like, I didn't knight you. Are you kidding? You're not worthy. You know, something like that. And he's like, well, you yeah. sort of Dunk's did. Like, oh, does he, can, you know? <laughs> can he take it back like that? Yeah. Anyway, we're just speculating, yeah. but it just yeah. goes to show there are other possibilities besides just yes or no here. Yeah, a, a exactly. One. Yeah, I like that. I like that. Because I don't, I don't, I'm not terribly open to it never happened at all but i like this sort of hybrid concept of <laughs> something wasn't quite right about it maybe the dunk season yeah. is incomplete that that works better for me as, a, as an alternative 
But maybe one day we'll find out for sure. Also, with this falling star, yeah, like as a metaphor, a lot of good things come from falling stars, like Dawn, the sword, right? <laughs> um, the metal that comes out of it, uh, the it founded a house, and it, it happens like the um, in their fight, Arian swinging his morning star, and the ball comes down on Dunk's head, and and it's very symbolic. But Dunk gets back up again, and it reminds me of. What Arthur Dane says to Jamie when Jamie's being knighted, uh, he's, he lays Dawn on his shoulder the, to knight him, you know, back and forth. Like, but Dawn is so sharp that it cuts him just being laid, just laid on his <laughs> shoulder like that. And, and Arthur says, all knights bleed. This is a function of that. Dunk sitting there and questioning whether he's good enough is a function of that, of all knights bleed. He's, get, he's considering himself and asking himself whether he's good enough. It's the same thing as sharpening your sword or practicing your strokes, getting down in the mud and actually fighting. Is If we agree that knighthood is part fighting and part behavior, then you better have some self-reflection. You don't necessarily have yeah. to ask, oh, am I good enough? It doesn't have to take the exact shape that dunks. Uh, imposter syndrome, I think, is a good thing to use as an example here that you brought up. The fact that you're, if you're not questioning yourself, like there, too much confidence is a bad thing. Too much confidence is arrogance. Like Arian is pretty arrogant, you know, like the guy just seems very full of himself, you know, um, a good example of that. Perhaps. I mean, obviously he's, it's not just about his confidence. He's not, he's also like a psychopath, but Hey, <laughs> 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 let's take a few questions here. Um, Julie A says it's proof that Arian is a bully and a coward by demanding the trial of seven. He would risk 14 lives instead of just one. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think you were right, Sean. I think by demanding a trial by seven rather than a trial of one, I think that I don't know that he was afraid of him to face him head on because he did go right for him in the fight. Uh, although maybe that was just because people were watching. But you're, there's definitely something to the fact that he probably thought there's a good chance that no one that he wouldn't be able to get seven. After all, they tried to bribe they successfully bribed Stefan away. So they were definitely trying to undermine Dunk getting to seven. So there's pretty straightforward yeah. evidence of that. So, yeah, I guess Arian wasn't afraid to fight when it came down to it, but he maybe was trying to avoid the fight in the first place. Just uh, that's the way bullies are. They'll they'll use violence, but they prefer to not have it returned. <laughs> yeah. One-sided. There's different types and levels of cowardice, and I think Arian isn't a straight-up coward, but he's not a straight-up hero either, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Dornish Dame once, and you gotta wonder what Daron the Second thought slash did when he was told about about this death. Apparently, he news went back and forth pretty quickly because they argued about there was some debate over the funeral practice, and it was Daron's word to go ahead with the burning. Matthew Dominique says, I do feel like Baylor picking a side is just as much a political scandal than letting Dunk go. And yeah. I wanted to say that I agree with this, but that I wanted to bring it back to what Sean said about it being more dictatorial, about it not necessarily being political, but about not just telling people what to do. Mm. It looks bad out from the outside, kind of like like oh, the Targaryens were fighting each other. Like, yeah. you know, like wow, what's that all about? Yeah, it, it, you could definitely like look at pieces of this and judge them. But what are the alternatives? This is sort of a, a, a no good, a, a lesser of five evils, if you will. You know <laughs> yeah. what I mean? Like all the different ways you could potentially handle this have some problem, and this one I think in the end 
maybe on some level has the, the greatest risk, but also has the least problems. You know, the, the, it, it doesn't set bad precedents for the future. It maintains the level of honor and integrity for the family, the law, it, and never mind just the right thing or Dunk's character, et cetera. So, yeah, right on. And also, for the most part, everyone, I don't know how to say this, risking their lives here. Is, is asking for it. They're they're mm. they're in on this. They're agreeing to it. it no one's being coerced. You know? That's true. That's true. I Except think Daron's a little bit being coerced. Huh? I think Daron is honestly. Yeah, a I guess bit. Daron is a little. It, it, Dunk kind of is a little I, bit too. Yeah, <laughs> that's I guess true. The Kingsguard too, but hey, you know. <laughs> yeah, the, their whole life is coercion. So, <laughs> uh, here's a question from CC, aka Mrs. Duncan the Tall. Hi, friends. I'm loving the new Valaritas episodes. Here's a question. At the end of the story, Makar asks Dunk if his tree, his elm tree, gives him any answers. Dunk replies, none that I can hear. Is this perhaps um, foreshadowing or a nod or some sort of implication that the old gods will communicate to Dunk via Weirwood or Bloodraven himself communicate to him? Certainly he's going to have Bloodraven in his life. So you could have the uh, sort of the middleman um, communicating there. And there's this quote. Uh, that comes at the beginning of the Sworn Sword, I think it is. It doesn't matter where it is, really, but Dunk remembering the first time he met Bloodraven, which is when he was a kid, he saw Bloodraven from afar, and he said he looked like he was looking into his soul. And uh, By the way, Jimi Hendrix behind me, he's looking into your soul. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. That's true. He is good at that. Jimi Hendrix, rather, in honor of the Red Keep, he wrote a song about the Red House. Hmm, yes. There you go. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, this is an interesting question because, yeah, it is. I, I, I took note of that quote, too. It's a little, you know, it's an elm tree, not a weirwood. But, of course, if it was a weirwood, that would all the alarm bells would go off. And what's a weirwood <laughs> doing there? And, you know, let me see its face. And, yeah, that maybe would be a little too obvious. But, yeah, anytime someone asks, are the trees talking? You, you got to go, wait, what's this all? What's that now? <laughs> <laughs> you can't just skip over talking trees in, in A Song of Ice and Fire or related properties. So. Um, yeah, I do wonder about that, you know, all this connection with, with Bloodraven and Maker. I'm not sure we can, we certainly don't have a definitive answer, but yes, I think there is, George is alluding to this as his future, as the, the whispering of trees is going to matter a lot. Probably more for Egg than Dunk, though, if we're being honest. Although things that matter for Egg matter for Dunk. Yeah, it's true. They're really tied together. It's hard to separate them, yeah. I guess, in, in, in a lot of ways. Uh, and of course, we know they're going to go to the wall. Right. At some point, um, that's going to happen. So we'll see about that. That's that's later. I wanted to cite this comment from YouTube by Feral 75 because it very well summarizes the issues facing Dunk from and, and Brienne from a societal angle. So this is a good said from Feral 75. It's the inherent sexism which defines chivalry that is Brienne's biggest obstacle. And for Dunk, it's the inherent snobism which comes from the upper classes that also defines chivalry as his obstacle. And both are managing to show to everyone that these two age-old tropes of chivalry are meaningless mummery. <laughs> very, very well said. Snobism, which comes from the upper class, a.k.a. classism. Yes. <laughs> yes, good said, yes. So that's awesome. That's really well said, Feral 75. It's true. This, this story not only highlights those aspects of chivalry, which maybe aren't chivalrous, they shouldn't belong as, the, as part of the definition of chivalry, although they often are lumped in there. And George is showing us that by highlighting that, we really get a sense of, yeah, what the upper class thinks of as chivalry a lot of times involves... The, these sexism and classism and that's 
very much defeats the purpose in the first place. Uh, Igor, Igor P says, my most memorable cheating technique from this tourney is injuring people during practice. Yeah, that's one we didn't mention. That's just there's we, we did mention that there's just this assault of little examples of cheating and unchivalrous behavior. Just just countless examples. And this is one we didn't specifically cite, but that's a pretty good one. Like, <laughs> like looking for an edge. It's a good uh, a good uh, hint at the idea of a tournament night that we see in the third book. The idea that the sort of angles that people have just to win these tournaments they don't have anything to do with chivalry or even being a good fighter. Just like ways to game the system. Yeah, you know? I even understand. I understand it, it. It makes sense to try to find edges, but it maybe doesn't make sense for a chivalrous knight to try to find those edges. You know, or maybe they need to have better rules for the tournament. I don't know, but yeah. Uh, Andrew Lim uh, calls back our example of dragonflies. When I was stationed in Korea, we used to have competitions to see who could get a dragonfly to catch the biggest pebble. Some of the dragonflies were big enough to grab and momentarily hold pebbles twice the size of a pea. They are wonderful insects. Whoa, dragonflies catching pebbles? That's wild. I didn't know that was a thing. Learn something new every day, I suppose. Yeah, that's really cool. Thanks for that, Andrew Lim. Um, dragonflies are pretty amazing. I mean, it makes sense that they'd be amazing in a lot of ways. Like human evolution didn't start as long ago as dragonfly evolution. They've been evolving for, what, 60 million more years, years than us, something like that. So, yeah, they're impressive. Kevison says, on the subject of the Laughing Storm knocking off pieces of his opponent's armor and tossing them to the crowd, a victor in a tourney or melee wins his defeated horse and armor. So he really is giving away part of his winnings to the commons, which I would argue is chivalrous. Yeah, it is sort of a gray area. Now, to be fair, yeah, we even called it Robin Hooding their helmets uh, at the time when we brought this up. But the understanding between defeated opponents is that you'll get to buy your stuff back. Like they generally sell it back. Like you almost always sell it back to the person you beat. You take the money and let them have their stuff because their stuff is customized. It's personal. It's it's their it's size. The understanding, right? But it's not the rule, right? So that's that's the <laughs> argument. Is it chivalrous to not go by this understood rule? Like it's definitely chivalrous to give money to charity. I would say, but is it chivalrous to divert that from? Like he could just get the money and give it to them. He doesn't have to give them. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> like, it's not like this is his only way to give money to charity here. Yeah, it's it's He's selfish. The line. It's selfish. Yeah, it's he, just straight up is. He wants the, you know, people applauding him. He wants show, the pageantry yeah, of it all. It's showy. Yeah, I don't yeah. I don't really think yeah. that it's like he wants to help the common people. He wants the approbation. Yeah, he wants the cheers. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think he cares about helping. I do want to give him a little benefit of the doubt because later on, when Baylor's presenting his plan of fighting the, like, I'll take the King's guards because they can't attack me anyway. He's the one that says, is that chivalrous? Yeah, that's a good point. I don't point. know about that. I, that's you a good know. point. He, he, so. I, he seems to be mindful of it, at least. That, so. That's exactly where I was going, what I was going to say. He seems to care whether or not this act is actually chivalrous is debatable, but he might see it as that. And he maybe is a chivalrous guy in general. If he got into an intellectual debate with someone, he might like reevaluate and stop doing it, you know. Yeah, but uh, maybe not. He, he might just be like, "Nah, I'm gonna keep doing it. It's it's gray area, whatever." <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? They're like, I didn't take their heads off with their helmets. <laughs> <laughs> Julie A uh, asks question for the panel: Is John having dragon dreams? I don't think so. I don't think any of his dreams have been explicitly dragony. Like he doesn't have dreams of specific dragons. He has dreams that you could say have like f- flame and fire in them and stuff like that. But most of his dreams are of like the crypts. He has a few skin changing dreams. 
I would say magic dreams, yes. Dragon dreams specifically, no. If that's actually a cat. I category. think I concur. Okay, cool. Any Anything to add, Shea? I concur. Right. I would be a fool if I did not concur. <laughs> Should have concurred. Why didn't I just concur? I just concur. <laughs> that's a reference to Catch Me If You Can, y'all. If you haven't seen that movie, very fun, very fun. By the way, it's supposedly based on a true story. It's not. <laughs> Almost. Oh, really? Yeah, it's not. It, I read this whole takedown on it. Frank, most of what is in that in the movie is not was never independently verified. It, Abignale like tells this story and wrote a book about it, but people just didn't question it. But people who have questioned it, yeah, it's almost all bull. It's too bad because it's so it's like maybe based on a true story, but it's highly embellished. It's it's massive, practically not massively true. embellished. Yeah. yeah, like for example, yeah. he like he really massively harassed that family in, in, in Louisiana and uh, he didn't ever escape from the plane. Like a lot of these other things just didn't happen. And yeah, he, he b- downplayed how bad he was <laughs> and upplayed, upplayed say. how, um, how clever he was. So yeah. And also it, the biggest, bigger issue is that so much of this happened in a pre-internet era when people just couldn't question, like things couldn't be questioned and, and no one's now only yeah. a few people have gone back to check here in the year 2021. So anyway, Quite a tangent there, folks. Let's uh, get back to it. I want to shout out our friends over at Shire Post Mint. They're doing a fantastic job making coins of all stripes, a Song of Ice and Fire coins, but also other types of coins from different fandoms. Really high quality. You get stuff of, of um, that looks like it's straight from some dragon's hoard, but without the grime that you might associate with sitting under a dragon for a century. You know, next time you talk about Shire Post, we need to grab our, our bag of coins and you need to like shake it in front of the microphone for some ASMR for everyone. Mm, I'll jingle my oh, I'll yeah. jingle my sack. In front oh, of God. <laughs> yeah, I think I got a uh, I, I, they're probably in storage from when I moved here to Denver from Atlanta. But I think I got quite a few of them from uh, from Stephen Stark. I think he. Uh, yeah. Gave me a selection of those coins. The first that I became aware of them. Yeah, yeah those the uh, the the Bravosi Iron Coin is probably their most popular seller among the Song of Ice and Fire coins. That's a really good one. There's very there's a lot of versions of it though. There is there's like a square version and just a lot of like some variations on the artwork and stuff like that. So yeah. Well, there's like the Faceless Man coin versus you know the Bravosi. Right, coin. that's true. There's a couple of. But if you want to buy some for yourself or for a friend or loved one, uh, if you go to our website on the sidebar to the right, you'll see a direct link. And if you buy through that link, it will help support us. Most of the purchases I've made of Shire Postman were for gifts for someone else. They're really It's a really easy way to just be like, ooh, a gift for someone. And there's so many of them, you don't have to ever repeat. <laughs> but yeah, Z's also has some cool, you know, historical ones. They don't just have fantasy. Yeah. All right, let's talk about the plan. As you said, Sean, you already mentioned this quote from Lionel. The gods will let us know. Uh, we've talked about how the gods don't have any powers, the seven, but maybe they do. Um, they didn't seem to be happy with this trick if Baylor's death is any clue. Yeah. <laughs> it depends on what the gods were letting them know exactly. By the way, that's one of my favorite lines of the whole series was when when Baylor says, the gods will let us know. It's uh, I, I like it because you can't really are you against it? Because all, all the people that ostensibly believe in the gods is like, all right, well, if you believe in the gods, here we go. You know, like how can you argue against? It's like this sort of excuse, but also maybe he really does believe in the gods. Yeah. It, it's, it's so many angles to it that, uh, 
it, it seems like it's a good plan. If there is a problem with it, look, we're already putting our hands, we're already putting our lives in God's hands anyway. Yeah. So it's a very, or at least we're going to do it in a way that seems wisest. And if the gods don't like it, they'll let us know. So uh, that's a good said right there for sure. He's probably devout. And I think there's a really strong argument that he is legitimately devout and not just saying this. After all, he's the son of Daron the Good, who idolized Baylor the Blessed, the so-called Septon King. So, I mean, as he's got a direct line to—I mean, he's named after Baylor the Blessed. That's so absolutely. This guy was given a religious upbringing. His family—he's brought—he was brought up amongst people that are devout believers that have. Serious faith is a big part of their life. So, yes, we have to reckon with that as part of his attitude, part of his character. I think it would be a mistake not to. Something that prayer is, religion aside, you know, even if you're a straight atheist, there still is something. Prayer still has these, I think, at least two purposes that it serves. You reflect on what you're thankful for. A lot of your prayers are, you know, thank you, God, for this, whatever. And I think that's a valuable thing. And the other is to think about what you want. You know, like, please let my cousin be cured of cancer or let me get this job or whatever. Those are things that prayer do, whether or not you believe in gods. And so whether they are real gods, whether Baylor believe them or not, you got to imagine he probably prayed on this. And part of his prayer was, what do I want to happen here? How do I make that happen? Okay, I got a plan. Gods will let us know. Mm, yeah, well said. A couple of things about jousting here, about whether this, like the le legitimacy of this trick and uh, just a couple of things that are useful to know. Okay, so the, first of all, they talk about breaking a lance is honorable. When Bale says breaking in a tournament, breaking a lance is honorable, but, but here it might be the difference between life and death. Okay, the reason breaking a lance is honorable is because it means you scored a clean hit. The lances are designed to break, tournament lances are designed to break, but they're designed to break in a manner commensurate with this would have been a fatal blow if, or a strong blow, if not for this breakability put into the lance. So it's, in other words, they're only designed to break when you strike a, a really good blow or if, you know, if just bends backwards or something like that, obvious. You need to have good skill to, to, to aim it well, right? Yes. But if your aim is at the horse or their head, you're not going to break the lance. You're going to break their head or kill their horse. Right. So, it's honorable to, to, to have enough skill to, that you could have hit their head, but to hit their shield so that your lance breaks, it's like, it's what the goal is in a tournament. So. so think about a bunch of your friends, like any of your friends who are gamers. Maybe you're a gamer too. You talk about your favorite game, like your, your, or whatever game you guys are playing right now, or some game that you've been playing for a long time. Maybe you, or maybe you're some, you have friends who like to discuss battles, or real historical battles. Picture this with these guys who go to tournaments all the time and who joust a lot. They probably have thought about a lot of the tactics and strategies and a, a trial by seven though wouldn't be something that none of them have ever participated in so they probably have thoughts on like the right strategy for a seven on seven and things like that it, this is what like like jousting nerds right <laughs> like there's these knights <laughs> that think about jousting strategy baylor quite possibly has had this idea for a long time he's like you know what this is that time to try that you know just thinking about reach because i i wonder if he had this idea just now, like he was praying, like he's up all night thinking about it. And this is one of the things that, that came to him. And he, he considers it like a inspiration from the gods. Like the father sent him, you know, some inspiration or something like that. It's kind of interesting. I wonder how much they thought about this. We think about like how much of a question of politics is here, but he probably quite a bit of 
tactics has been discussed or at least hashed out. That's kind of things these these nobles talk about. We talk about fighting all the time, right? Like, yeah, it's another thing is sometimes, for better or worse, tradition can seep its way into into a lot of things, but in into war, you know, yeah. even like uh, in colonial times, it was standard for the armies to like schedule a meeting. All right, nine o'clock on this field, we're going to meet up and then shoot at each other until more people die on one side or the other, whatever. And it was kind of like, what do these Americans do and running into the trees? You know, these sort of guerrilla tactics, but Americans weren't as attached to the traditions. We're just trying to win this battle. Yeah. And so I can imagine over time, tradition arose like this is how you make a war lance and it just made them all the same but if someone's like well what if i might make mine a little bit longer you know like maybe it's more likely to break but i'm more likely to knock them off their horse first mm-hmm. but people aren't actively thinking about that mostly baylor thought of that so yeah you're you're you touched on a lot of important concepts there uh one of them is that eventually early on in early warfare that's exactly what happened they agreed to fight at a certain place in time Sometimes it was just one-on-one. It was like a trial by combat. Sometimes it was just like 40 dudes versus 40 dudes. So this is this trial by of seven is, is reflective of something that was true in ancient times. And they didn't involve the peasants. That's, that's what happened a lot of times. They just didn't involve the peasants at all. It was just the nobles gathering and fighting and hashing out their problems. It was a later advancement of, quote, well, I guess you could say, actually, it was more of a sliding backwards. Of, <laughs> a regression. Yeah, a regression of adding in the peasants and making them fight too. And that's, part of that came from these... When you have a powerful nation that can go up against a powerful nation, what you do is you attack their castle, you attack their base. But the problem is you get these barren level nobles who are permitted to fight. They're permitted to conduct private wars that the Cursed Kings series, which we've cited a bajillion times, is an example of a king who tried to stop that. He's like, no, no more private wars. Aegon V, this egg tried to do the same thing. He's like, stop it with the private wars, y'all. Enough of that. And one of the reasons is, historically speaking, the private wars are, can be so much more destructive than the big ones, which is oddly unintuitive. But it's true. The reason is, think about this. I'm a baron. I got 500 men. You're a baron. You got 500 men. 500 men is not enough for me to take your castle. 500 men is not enough for you to take my castle. So what do we do? We attack each other's weaker spots. I attack your village. You attack my village. I attack your village. And so the peasants just pay the price because it's the they're the, they become the targets because these guys literally can't attack each other's bases. And this went on for hundreds of years. You also get a greater concentration of people dying in one little area yeah. where if if the, the the larger, you know, the levels up and the feudal system lords declare war, this this village might have had to give up 20 men to go fight in some war and all the villages give up 20 and they all go off and they fight in some war and you get, you know, 3000 people raised. But if these villages fight each other, all 200 of the men go fight all 200 of the other men. They all end up killing each other and two villages are completely wiped out instead of a little piece of a bunch of villages being wiped out. Yeah. Yeah. It's totally true. And you see that even in modern war, sometimes you would have, cause you like, I think you alluded to this a long time ago. You'll occasionally have units that are formed from one town. The 82nd Airborne Division is called the All-American Airborne Division because it was the first one that had a soldier from every state. Oh. This is like, you know, the early 1900s. You know, this is it was uh, the, the American Army was still fundamentally going up into World War II. Every soldier in a unit was just all from some town in North Carolina or all from some town in Wisconsin or whatever. Mm. It was a relatively modern war that you started to have people from enough different areas mixed together in army units. <laughs> so one last thing about lances. 
they did start off basically as just spears on horseback. It's kind of a misunderstanding that knights fight with their swords a lot. They don't really... So the sword was like your plan B weapon when you were a knight fighting other knights. Sword is a fantastic weapon against unarmored folk. But if you're fighting against someone in heavy armor, a sword isn't that great, especially compared to other things. And the sword was often used more like a spear or a mace when fighting an armored opponent. Your three main knightly weapons were the spear slash lance, then the poleaxe, and then the dagger. Dagger was more important than the sword because the dagger is what you use when you're wrestling, like which we see Dunk get involved in multiple times. That's when he's at his best because of his size. So basically over the years, there's just a bajillion versions of lance, war lance, jousting lance, this and that. At first, there were just lances. The jousting lance was an uh, was a advancement because of these tournaments that weren't meant to be killing each other, although they were clearly still deadly. And they invented something called the coronel tip. Coronel tip is uh, like a like a tripod almost, and it's designed for unhorsing rather than putting all the the force of the horse and the rider into that tip, which would kill, obviously. So in a tournament, you change instead of that point, you have a uh, like a a, br- a brace which is better for shoving. Uh, so there you go. That's why. So this, these lances would have had those coronel tips, most likely, which was like, yeah, they're better at unhorsing, which they really would be better at unhorsing because they're designed for that. Whereas in a war situation, unhorsing is nice, but you really just want to kill them. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Getting them off the horse is great, but they can get up and still fight if once they're off their horse. So well, let's go to the actual trial. Something that strikes me here very majorly in this somewhat extended quote is just how much ice and fire others and dragons theme work is being done here. It's really quite epic. Let's have it. A roar went up from the crowd at the North end of the meadow, a column of knights came trotting out of the river mist. The three Kings guard came first like ghosts in their gleaming white enamel armor, long white cloaks trailing behind them. Even their shields were white blank and clean as a field of new fallen snow. Behind rode Prince Makar and his sons. Arian was mounted on a dapple gray, orange, and red flickering through the slashes in the horse's caparison at each stride. His brother's destrier was smaller, was a smaller bay armored in overlapping black and gold scales. A green silk plume trailed from Daron's helm. It was their father who made the most fearsome appearance, however. Black curved dragon teeth ran across his shoulders, along the crest of his helm, and down his back and the huge spiked mace strapped to his saddle was its, was as deadly looking a weapon as any dunk had ever seen. Oof. That's what I was saying when I talk about Makar looking intimidating. I mean, picture that. That is just, woof, goodness. <laughs> I remember when I was a kid, I don't know, kind of probably most kids go through a phase we're kind of enamored with knights and medieval kind of culture and combat and swords and such. And I remember thinking that um, a ball and chain, um, I was like, Ugh, man, that's it. I don't know. For some reason in my mind, it was like more real. That would just smash someone's skull in. Yeah. <laughs> it's more dangerous or scary to me than a sword or whatever else. Yeah, you, well, you're not wrong. Apparently that's, uh, yeah, the, the mace was didn't really become a thing until armor became a thing. Um, I mean, back in the day, people would fight with clubs and spears. Uh, you know, clubs became less effective when people developed basic Helmets. armor and stuff but then so this was an answer to that it's like what if we make the ball heavy and spiked and fully metal and all that <laughs> yep most of these almost every piece of armor or every weapon is an answer to a previous armor or weapon that gets used regularly that's the the history of warfare is, is just a history of 
building something that defeats the last tool your enemies were using. Rock, paper, scissors, a lot of times it is. <laughs> yeah. Like you go from, oh, this armor, because to wear the, to wear the proper armor, you, you get too slow. Okay, well, what if we don't wear any armor? And like, oh, then now we'll, we'll get to change weapons to fight against people that don't wear armor. And yeah, just, it's very cultural. <laughs> Rock, paper, scissors turns into knife, gun, nuke. Yeah. <laughs> eventually. <laughs> so what we have here, though, the portrayal, the theme work, the symbolism here is very heavy. You got three dragons. Makar, Arian, and Daron, the dragon with three heads, and then you have three Kingsguard in all white. So ghost shadows, they're they're portrayed as pure white, snow, and ghost. Those words are both used. Then you have the dragons with all their colors and teeth, and it's just over-the-top awesome. And, of course, there's also Stefan Fossaway. So three dragons, three white ghosts, and an apple. That, not exactly sure how you fit that in there. By the way, it didn't occur to me the, I don't know, a allusion to the death of those dragons that the ghosts are accompanying yeah, them yeah mm-hmm. good call and then, and who are they lining up to fight it's a coalition united by a common goal this is dunk side is like mankind all of humanity facing these huge supernatural challenges is of uh, the twin supernatural challenges of ice and fire they got we got to face the dragons we got to face the others and is it going to be enough? Do we are we enough? Well, you you want the dragons, the others, and the apple. Yeah, <laughs> apple. What is he doing in there? <laughs> well, they needed the seventh, so you got to have that guy. Well, it's the he represents the the humans that take the side of of evil, the ones who don't stand okay. with their fellows. I, I'm I'm making this up as I go along, but there's definitely <laughs> something there. <laughs> you know, the apple as a symbol of of um, being tempted, right? By yeah, yeah, by the f- yeah. Well, that's actually really good. Adam and Eve, yeah. yeah. Because he was tempted by the dragon to, uh, with rewards to be made a lord. It didn't work out, but hey. <laughs> yeah, that might be it. I mean, we're actually talking about the faith and the seven, which, you know, that is the closest to real world uh, Catholicism or what have you, um, other Christian versions of Christianity, if you prefer. So let's talk about the fight itself. Uh, here's a quote about his him uh, kind of struggling to get it going in the fight. Uh, and it's very meaningful like this is you know the action itself is is interesting um you know it's gripping but george uh, once again he does so much with how he describes the action that you can make connections to elsewhere and you can really feel for the struggle like you really feel for dunk's imposter syndrome here because that's what he's that's what's happening right he's he's losing but he's not like oh my god i'm dying oh my god woe is me no he's like i've failed you know, he's worried about the people that were counting on him, and yep. he just like to see that. Let's have the quote. His long sword went spinning from his grasp, and the ground rose up to meet him. He landed with a bruising impact that jarred him to the bone. Pain stabbed through him so, sar- so sharp he sobbed. For a moment, it was all he could do to lie there. The taste of blood filled his mouth. Thunk the lunk. Thought it could be at night. He knew he had to find his feet again or die. So he does find his feet again, but then... He gets smashed. It's actually, I have these lines out of order. The spiked ball whirled round and round the sky and fell towards his head as fast as a shooting star, which is a call back to him like, oh, the shooting star goes down. That's bad. You know, <laughs> he's like, <laughs> <laughs> am I going to fall as fast? And then indeed the quote, he starts like this. He broke my head and I'm dying. What was worse was the others who would die with him. Raymond and Prince Baylor and the rest. I failed them. I'm no champion. 
I'm not even a hedge knight. I'm nothing. He remembered Prince Daron boasting that no one could lie and sensible in the mud as well as he did. He never saw Dunk the Lunk, though, did he? The shame was worse than the pain. Yeah, the shame was worse than the pain. And he just said his he broke his head. I mean, he was just whacked by a <laughs> spiked morning star, for God's sake. He's just in horrible pain. He's already had a lance. He's already, this is past the point where he's yanked the lance out of his side. But the shame is worse than the pain. This is a man who has a humongous heart. Uh, but here's where we get a parallel to perhaps the most famous duel in all of A Song of Ice and Fire. Uh, also a trial by combat, though, with only one-on-one, not seven-on-seven. And that is, well... Let's see if you can guess as we are reading the quote. First, the Duncan Egg quote. He rolled into Arian's legs, threw a steel-clad arm around his thigh, dragged him cursing into the mud, and rolled on top of him. Okay, so at this point, when you're a huge man, and you, you know, he's wounded, so it's not definitely over, but at this point, Dunk's probably going to win. Almost certainly. Huge guy on top of small guy, as close as possible, that's what Dunk maybe should have been aiming for all along to get into a spot like this, because this is, as he knows, he's good at this kind of fighting. He's already skilled at it because it's part of his upbringing, but his size and strength make him just overwhelmingly talented at it, too. So if you haven't figured out, well, here's the quote that this lines up with quite nicely. Clegane's hand shot up and grabbed the Dornishman behind the knee. The Red Viper brought down the greatsword in a wild slash, but he was off balance, and the edge did no more than put another dent in the mountain's vambrace. Then the sword was forgotten as Gregor's hand tightened and twisted, yanking the Nordishman down on top of him. They wrestled in the dust and blood, the broken spear wobbling back and forth. Tyrion saw with horror that the mountain had wrapped one huge arm around the prince, drawing him tight against his chest like a lover. And at that point, it was over, right? I mean, there was yeah, once yeah. <laughs> Oberyn. The huge advantage swung the other way. Yeah, yeah. right. That's like he, he used his spear, his reach. He did all these things to keep Gregor's size and strength muted. But then he got cocky. He got close. He taunted him, thought it was over, but it wasn't. And that's mm-hmm. exactly what happened here. Arian was like, oh, I've got you. It's over. You know, beg for mercy. He's trying to get him to talk. It's exactly what the Red Viper's doing. He's like, admit, admit your guilt, you know, and yeah. then I'll kill you. And this is exactly the same. Like, yeah, admit that you're 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 a loser and maybe I'll only take your hand and maybe we'll leave your foot. You know, it's just the same kind of gloating. Uh, he's not after justice here unlike the red viper there's you know you don't you're not rooting for the guy on the ground in that case <laughs> you're not rooting for the mountain but the physical similarities in the fights here are just un- unmistakable once you point them out what's he start doing he starts monologuing <laughs> yes <laughs> never start monologuing in a fight <laughs> <laughs> Even when your opponent's down and poisoned and you've pinned him to the ground with his with the spear <laughs> just to make sure he's dead when he's eight feet tall. And this is another parallel we have here. I like to bring this one up. Nina cited this one. This has been uh, a long time coming, us talking about Brienne and Dunk. But oddly enough, this is the first thing we see from Brienne. So this is a nice long quote, but we're going to uh, enjoy ourselves dissecting it afterwards. The white horse and the black one wheeled like lovers at a harvest dance, the riders throwing steel in place of kisses. 
Long Axe flashed and Morningstar whirled. Both weapons were blunted, yet they still raised an awful clangor. Shieldless, the Blue Knight was getting much, much the worse of it. Solaris rained down blows on his head and shoulders to shouts of High Garden from the throng. The other gave answer with his morning star, but whenever the ball came crashing in, Solaris interposed his battered green shield emblazoned with three golden roses. When the Long Ants caught the Blue Knight's hand on the backswing and sent the morning star flying from his grasp, the crowd screamed like a running beast. The Knight of Flowers raised his axe for the final blow. The Blue Knight charged into it. The stallion slammed together. The blunted axe head smashed against the scarred blue breastplate. But somehow the blue knight had half had the haft locked between still gauntleted fingers. He wrenched it from Solaris' hand, and suddenly the two were grappling mount to mount. And an instant later, they were falling as their horses pulled apart. They crashed to the ground with bone-jarring force. Loris Tyrell on the bottom took the brunt of the impact. The blue knight pulled a long dirk free and flicked open Tyrell's visor. The roar of the crowd was too loud for Caitlin to hear what Sir, Sir Laura said, but she saw the words from his split, bloody lips yield. So compare that to end of the duel here, and it's very similar. A visor is a weak point, he remembers Steely, Steely Pate saying. Mm -hmm. The prince had all but ceased to struggle. His eyes were purple and full of terror. Dunk had a sudden urge to grab one and pop it like a grape between two steel fingers, but that would not be nightly. Yield, he shouted. I yield, the dragon whispered, pale lips barely moving. So that was, those two fights spliced together is also going to, like the, like a triumvirate of fights, because Dunk versus Lucas Longinch in the next uh, story is very similar. It's the same thing where he loses his weapon and then charges forward and wins because he can out-grapple the other guy. Now, that's a tougher grappling because Longinch is huge, but here... It's over really quickly because Loras is more like the Red Viper versus the Mountain in this case, where he's great at a distance. He's an amazing fighter. But once he gets in close combat with someone twice his size, well, all his advantages are gone. Notice, too, Dunk talking about the urge to pop his eye, which, of course, given we were just talking about the Red Viper and the Mountain, well, <laughs> someone did not have any qualms about doing that he didn't care about it seeing he was not very nightly either <laughs> he was not very <laughs> nightly <laughs> nor was yelling out about how he uh did those things to his family um yeah that's right i'm not a knight and i'm gonna keep not being a knight <laughs> <laughs> yeah also this is a nice little setup for uh we've got arian down in the mud all brown which is you know we're about to we're gonna have that two stories from now when the brown dragon you know they mocking <laughs> him for that so it's a brown dragon before the browner dragon we also even have similar weapons at use there like the morning star being used by loris versus the morning star being used by uh, arian here and of course the uh flicking of the visor open with the dagger that is um, a similar aspect as well. Also, when he's getting ready to joust, he thinks to himself, my lance is part of my arm. All I have to do is reach out and touch him with my one long finger, which, hey, folks, did you think of Sirio saying the sword is part of your arm? You cannot drop your arm. Mm. <laughs> so uh, good call. Yeah, that gave me good feels thinking about Sirio there. Oh, here's a here's a fun line. He pressed his heels down, tightening his legs with all his strength and letting his body become part of the motion of the horse beneath. I am thunder and thunder is me. We are one and we are one beast. We are joined. We are one. So he became a centaur right there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which, centaurs always make me think of that Saturday Night Live skit with uh, Christopher Walken doing the interview. 
Remember that? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> He's in, someone comes in for the interview and, and it's a centaur. And <laughs> and everyone's being normal at first. And Chris Walker's like, so I'm looking at your resume. How long were you at your last job? <laughs> Are you attracted to uh, horses or women? <laughs> and Centaur's like, can we just keep the interview to my job call? Okay, she's like, oh, sure, of course. But <laughs> if you saw the rear end of a horse and didn't know if it was a horse or a centaur, <laughs> would you be attracted to like... Can we just stick to my qualifications? Like, yeah, 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 but just tell me what. And he's like, I, I don't know. I guess I'd be attracted. It was a horse. <laughs> it was a horse. <laughs> a few other historical quotes here. Uh, more parallels. George showing consistency within his world building. We, of course, love to draw attention to these things. So here's a series of, of quotes that uh, work together, starting with another quote from Oberyn Martell. In the days of the Targaryens, a man who struck one of the blood royal would lose a hand he struck him with, observed the Red Viper of Dorne. And what does Baylor Breakspear say here? The last time a man was found guilty of striking one of royal blood, it was decreed that he should lose the offending hand. Roose Bolton also not a big fan of, of hands, I guess. Uh, Roose Bolton reached down, snapped the cord, and flung the hand at Hote. Take this away. The sight of it offends me. <laughs> An offending hand. <laughs> <laughs> that hand was already struck off, but uh, <laughs> so. Jamie hadn't struck any royal blood. Well, there was no uh, justification for that. Are you sure? He, he killed Ares <laughs> with that hand. Oh, you're right. Never mind. Yeah, he should have had his hand. It was, it was uh, a long delayed punishment. <laughs> it was <Yes>. 17 <laughs> years later or 18 years later. <laughs> yep, yep. What's funny is I actually didn't think of that when I wrote this quote here. <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah, he really did strike. He I got struck I got him you. pretty roughly there, didn't he? <laughs> uh, Aegon the Force had, um, he tried to invade Dorne. Like so many Targaryen kings, he tried to invade Dorne. Uh, unlike most of them, was even weaker. Uh, his was probably the worst attempt of all of them. He, he actually built dragons of wood and tried to roll them into Dorne through those hard mountain passes and these things were like meant to shoot wildfire? Yes, you heard that right. Wooden dragons that shoot wildfire. <laughs> he wanted to roll these through the mountain passes of Dorne <laughs> towards the end. Yeah, it didn't work out very well. But when you see Tansel's wooden dragons in the in the puppet show, it might be a little something else for them to be upset about, being mocked over this ridiculous attempt. I mean, fair play on mocking that, right? But still, <laughs> still. <laughs> okay, so remember when this story was written, The Clash of Kings, right around the same time. So here's another little uh, George filling it all out at once. Quote. Prince Darren gave a weary shrug. Egg has the truth of it. Arianne's quite the monster. He thinks he's a dragon in human form, you know. That's why he's so wroth at that puppet show. And then here, John's first chapter in A Clash of Kings. Arian the Monstrous, John knew that name, the prince who thought he was a dragon, was one of Old Nan's most gruesome tales. His little brother Bran had loved it. <laughs> it reminds me of when Daron says, too bad he wasn't born a fossil way. <laughs> <laughs> true that. I'll have a lot less to worry about if he thought he was an apple. True <laughs> that, true that. So this is the first trial in uh, seven in a century, according to the Laughing Storm. You know, of course, that we would be on point with telling you about that, but we don't know what that one was. The only other trial of seven we know of is from Magor the Cruel, and he fought a group of the warrior sons. Now, Baylor, pretty much the opposite of Magor. Yeah, Magor, kind of pretty much an opposite to uh, Dunk as well, although maybe through the 
transitive property. Magor is a lot like Gregor. The parallels we've we've shown between those two are are overwhelming. And of course, uh, as a mirror image, like Baylor is a mirror, the opposite of Magor in a lot of ways. Well, here you go. Dunk being the opposite of Gregor is something that we've come back to many times. So these things sort of fit together. Now, Magor had been stripped of his position of hand to the king after taking a second wife without permission and refusing to undo it. Uh, so he went into exile. And when he came back upon his brother's death, he's like, I'm the king now. And some other folk were like, are you? And well, they fought this trial of seven over that question. So talk about the opposite of like political importance on the on the you know, on the surface here, you've got a hedge knight being a true knight, rounding out his seven with Baylor Breakspear. Instead, we have the usurper, Magor the Cruel, who had been the youngest knight in the realm. So very, very openly a knight and deserving of it in terms of his martial prowess and very undeserving of it in terms of his personality. Magor was challenged over his right to rule, so the stakes could not have been higher. Instead of the life of a hedge knight, you've got the actual throne, right? He's having a trial by seven to take the throne away from these uh, warrior sons who are arguing he doesn't have the right. Like Baylor, Magor doesn't have the King's Guard on hand to fight with him. He basically came back from exile, stopped on Dragonstone, got crowned, and then flew to King's Landing to claim the crown. So the King's Guard, you know, they weren't, what are they going to do, ride on the back of his dragon with him? So this is pretty cool. Here's another quote. This this should ring familiar, kind of like the, the our lead into the Red Viper quote. This should be very familiar and it's very cool. Many turned away in fear or pretended that they did not hear for the prowess of the warrior's son was known to all. But at last, one man offered himself, no knight, but a simple man at arms who called himself Dick Bean. I've been a king's man since I was a boy, he said. I mean to die a king's man. I've been to die. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Only then did the first knight step forward. This bean shames us all, he shouted. <laughs> Are there no true knights here? No leal men? The speaker was Bernard Brune, the squire who had slain Heron the Red and been knighted by King Anis, King Anis himself. His scorn drove the others to offer their swords. So instead of a bean, we got an egg, I suppose. I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah, but this is very similar, right, to Are there no true knights among you? Like, I, like, it's very, like, no one comes, except for, no one actually comes forward except for Baylor <laughs> in that case but here it works because it's kind of the reverse it's the the hedge knight is the one stepping forward to defend the king rather than the hedge knight asking for help against the royal family so you can kind of the polit the politics of the situation are pretty straightforward in terms of how it plays out but in terms of standing as a mirror image slash parallel or as a example of this um, it's quite similar in a lot of ways and I think it's pretty neat of course it's much bloodier Magor, of those 14, only Magor survived uh, in his battle, uh, whereas here, none of the guys on the losing side actually die. Three guys on the winning side die, and no one on the losing side, so that's kind of odd, but hey, that's what happens. Now, we have also, even the ending point has sort of a reverse to it. Now, what happens with Baylor? He's like, he looks like he's fine. Maybe there's a little, maybe there's a little clue something's wrong because his speech is slurring, but he doesn't die till the helmet comes off, right? Well, check this out. What happens to Magor right here? Even as he fell, Sir William dealt the king a terrible blow to the head, cracked his helm, and left him insensate. Many thought Magor dead until his mother removed his broken helm. Uh huh. So, <laughs> this <laughs> Magor was dead until they removed his helm. 
Whereas Baylor is alive until they remove his helm. The Baylor scene where his just brain falls out is the the most disturbing and visceral scene in all the books to me. Really? Like I see it the most clearly. And next to Oprah getting his head exploded. And that was on TV. So I, you know, have a visual there. And here I don't even have a strong visual from anything except I just, I can like hear it in my head, like the, the swelch of it plopping yeah. down. Yeah. Have you been exposed to any zombies? You're not <laughs> craving this brain, are you? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, that's a great, that's a great segue to a topic that's almost next. We'll just jump ahead to it. But before we do that, I wonder about this trial of seven thing. Like most of the major events in the Song of Ice and his- Fire history, especially the ones that happen more than once, are setups for it to happen during a Song of Ice and Fire. Is there going to be a trial by seven? We got that question from Julie A. Asked what scenarios are likely to have one. And obviously the ones you immediately would think of are Cersei, Marjorie. Who else would be on a trial? I don't know. We have attorney happening up where Sansa is. Yeah, the current of the Winged Knights. Yeah, you wonder if there could be some similar kind of thing where like someone doesn't have enough people to fight for them, that kind of thing where they have to like... Yeah, I don't know who would be on trial at that tourney. Uh, I, that is one of the places I think of, but I think it's far more likely to happen for Marjorie or Cersei. Yeah, like the uh, the notion of the faith fighting Magor just makes you think of Cersei, right? Like yeah. fighting against Gregor or something, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. So yeah, I think I think Spinning it around Cersei's arc makes the most sense, perhaps, because of her going against the faith. So I think that might be a maybe it's going to come much later. Maybe it's like a dream of spring thing. Maybe it's like after the dragons and others are beaten and the the land is trying to fix itself in the great aftermath period. Maybe that's when this will happen. So that was a great segue, Shay, bringing up the, the gross brain part, because it's so it is really tragic you can't, uh, even the people that get it, they understand what happened. They still can't help resent Dunk because it's it, it just the pain, the realm is going to suffer and they can predict they'll suffer without Baylor is, is just so heavy, but quite possibly written with some real world sorrow mi- mingled into it. And you touched on the reason this is so meaningful is this brain bit that you're talking about. Okay, this comes from Stephen Atwell. Shout out to Stephen Atwell, Race for the Iron Throne. Great, a Song of Ice and Fire thinker. Nina pointed this out to us and uh, that he's written about this. Think about JFK. Okay, JFK was killed when George was 15 years old. George's family was Roman Catholic Democrats. (laughs) JFK is one of the most popular presidents of all time, especially among people with that background. Roman Catholic Democrats, right? Like that is the bullseye. I mean, that's literally what JFK was, a Roman Catholic Democrat. So this is a handsome, charismatic leader who was killed, you know, via assassination and the descriptions of his death involve the brain, his, a piece of his brain coming out. And that was the fatal shot. He was shot in the, in the back of the head, the same spot where Baylor was killed. So it's the same wound, the same sort of like promise unrealized for this leader that so many people cared a lot about. I mean, folks, it's hard to impart if you didn't live through it. I didn't live through it, but to, but hearing people talk about this, just how popular JFK was, it really does give this Baylor vibe of just how tragic his death was and, and how, you know, the nation was so sad. Like people, people would put JFK pictures next to Jesus, you know, like they, it was, it was like the Patriots, Jesus and JFK. <laughs> yeah, 
and I have to think people like uh, George and you know other uh, Kennedyites. No, I'm just. I have to think that the people back then, when terrible things happened in the future, at least for the next ten years or so, they had to be thinking in the back of their mind. If Kennedy had stayed, you know, president, this would not have happened. And what come yeah. what comes after this, right? More turmoil and death for the Targaryens. Well, Robert Kennedy was assassinated a few years later. So yeah. it's like that also continued. So I don't know. Does do you have any take on any of this, Sean, or does this kind of it never occurred to me, but when you talk about it, I feel like it's got to have influenced George's writing here, even if it was subconscious, you know? Uh, yeah. Like, I went searching in his SSM to see if he talks about Kennedy or, or anything like that. I couldn't find any direct reference to it, but the circumstantial evidence is pretty damn strong, huh? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, that, yeah. So, it is really sad. The funeral really does reflect that. So, you kind of wonder if he was trying to channel some of that. Uh, it's funny. I went looking for just, like, more, like, Ashford Meadow. Is that, like, Grassy Knoll? I don't know. <laughs> You know, it's just like really trying to like find more about this. But <laughs> I think the basics really do the work. You don't really need more details to to feel this connection. So, yeah. So there's that sort of like great loss of what could have been and, you know, what was instead. And that leads us to um, did you have anything more to say about the the funeral or the bargain or or the uh, the trial itself? So much of it we uh, talked about. I don't in advance. Think I... Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I have anything in particular. Uh, okay, cool. I'll, I'll add this comment right now from Guinevere Greenstones about the trial. Might Jamie pull a Tyrion and request a trial of seven from Catelyn? That would bring in the Duncan-Brienne parallel. Ooh, I wonder I if they think, would accept mm. that. I wonder if we're past that point. Who, I, yeah, I'm, who would even be involved? I hadn't considered it. I wonder if Jamie could even... Jamie would be maybe the one to struggle to find seven people to fight for him. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so... <laughs> When they're faced with this, not we we move from the sorrow of the tournament. We move from Valar. Just you can't. You just feel bad for the kid. We don't know very much about him. We know he become. I, I need to correct something I said earlier. We don't know how competent he was. We do know he becomes hand after this. He takes his father's job, which might have been politics, but probably not because Daron was a good king. I mean, he's Daron the Good. So he probably didn't just make this guy his hand because he's his nephew and the heir. But he might have. Either way, it didn't last long because the sickness came along so quickly. Yeah, you feel kind of feel bad for him. Makar summons Dunk, and before he goes to see Dunk, he once again, while he's thinking about it, rather, he's thinking about dragonflies. Well, we get another quote. What shall it be, Dunk? He asked himself. Dragonflies or dragons? A few days ago, he would have answered at once. It was all he had ever dreamed, but now that the prospect was at hand, it frightened him. Just before Prince Baylord died, I swore to be his man. Yeah, that's really a big deal. He, he's that vow. This is very Jamie, right? Jamie becomes someone that decides that his vows are important. Even even though he's broken so many of them, he's like, I'm not doing that anymore. Uh, you can't make up for vows I've broken. But I'm going to hold my vows from now on. Like, if I swear something, I'm sticking to it. And he, he really seems to, once again, because we can see in his head, we know he means it. And this seems to be kind of a key decision here. It's not really about what Dunk wants. It's about what Dunk has already agreed to, right? He's already given his word, even though it was to a dead man. What does that say to you, Sean? What do you, what is that, how does that resonate with you, this notion that is a promise stronger when you make it to a, a dead person? Does that kind of carry you like a sense of from sense of humanity? They can't do it. You have to. Does there 
an emotion behind that that isn't present when you swear to someone who's still alive. It's kind of hard to hard to parse. Yeah, I think it could go either way. I, 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 and I think there's other factors involved because I can't imagine someone feeling more committed than ever, but I can also imagine someone feeling like, I guess it doesn't matter anymore. Mm. And it might come down again. It might have been person to person. Like some people might use it as an excuse to not have to fulfill some obligation where some people might use it as motivation to fulfill an obligation, but some people might use it as a legitimate reason to not pursue something that's not practical. You know, mm, yeah, yeah, it'll, or, it'll vary. Or otherwise, yeah, it'll yeah. vary person to person, society to society. I guess task to task. Certainly, that's a good point. Yeah. Good said. Yeah, and that that was particularly important here because. Okay. Can I just say things- real quick? Yeah, I, I want to make a reference to King of the Hill, where mm-hmm. Cotton Hill is going to die, and he tells his son Hank he's supposed to cut his head off and deliver it uh, to Japan. <laughs> <laughs> and Hank's like, oh, I guess I got to do it. <laughs> <laughs> Sir Arlen, house motto, I tell you what. <laughs> his, his sigil is the blue flame of propane. <laughs> right in this moment, he's thinking about what to do. Makar also brings up the fact that they're both going to be the guy that is blamed for Baylor's death for the rest of their lives. So the fact that that point being raised as he's thinking of the fact that he swore to be Baylor's man is going to really, for a man like Dunk, that's going to hit pretty hard. Thinking having those two ideas side by side like that, like, yeah, I got to, I swore to be his man and to be like that, this kind of person, he kind of already is like that. But yeah, uh, all the more reason to live cursed? up to what you swore when, when you're going to be, when everyone's going to blame you for killing the guy. Is he thinking he's sort of cursed? Yeah, right. Yeah, like it's not like a supernatural curse, but it's yeah a social curse. Yes. Yeah. Very much true. It, it, arguably, it's worse for Megor because uh, he's – or Makar because it, it's it's not for, – for Dunk, it's at least not kinslaying. But uh, this it's pretty bad from a kinslaying perspective. Well, I was kind of just picturing Dunk being like, anyone I swear to is colored by this and – maybe doomed a little bit all the more reason to stick with egg i suppose (laughs) eggs it's like yeah well i I forgive you for that (laughs) yeah i I really like that i really did appreciate that that conversation between makar and dunk and and the aftermath in general i think uh, did a good job of dealing with the repercussions uh but on both the personal level and and the effects of the i don't know that the politics of the realm or whatever you know yeah yeah it's neat, too, thinking about how similar this is to Stannis um, with Renly, right? Oh, yeah. Right? Like the whole people say, like, I don't He doesn't even remember doing it. He's like, I, I must have hit him, you know, there. I don't even remember doing it, though, which is Stannis saying he doesn't remember the dream. He's like, I, well, like I have this dream, but when I woke up, my hands were clean. How could I have been there? Like, he doesn't make sense to him. It's very surreal. But there's no doubt, right, in the reader's mind, right, that he was <laughs> that he's partly responsible. The, the ins and outs, the logistics of it aren't clear, just as they aren't here, although they're a little simpler here, but still very, very similar. And I love, too, that when Dunk confronts Makar with the point about roughing it and how maybe roughing it would be good for Egg. Do you remember his yeah. reaction? Uh, I, I don't I don't know if there's an exact quote, but I, I, I my, my memory is that he was like, eh. 
just walked off. He does just walk right? off, but his jaw, <laughs> yeah. his jaw moves back and forth. Oh, that's right. And it grits his jaw like Stannis. Yeah, yeah, it's not yeah. the grinding. It's not the grinding, but it's very similar. <laughs> yeah, so it's like, mm. Mm. and they even gave uh, Makar pox scars, which Stannis doesn't have scars as far as I know, but his daughter has grayscale scars. So I just feel like, I don't know, George is having a little extra fun. It's like, how many more dots can I connect <laughs> between <laughs> these characters? That is not nearly all the connection between Makar and Stannis, but we're we're going to do some of that in our end of Dunkin' Egg wrap-up. We'll, we'll summarize a lot of these a little better rather than just um, diving into them piecemeal here and there. Let's talk about some of the, our funny moments as we close out this story. We'll do this at the end of The Sworn Sword and at the Mystery Night as well. Real quick, there was a uh, uh, a comment I meant to to get in earlier. Oh, sure, go ahead. We were talking about good, that how like how good of a night are you when he was asking Duncan? We were thinking about the idea of good. It also reminded me of what Maycar said in that uh, I don't know that arraignment, if you will, when they're deciding to have the trial of seven. He says, "If it causes just good men will fight for it." I think you might have even said, how much more plain can it be yeah, or something yeah. like that? Like, but, and uh, and that kind of also fits what I was saying about the idea of like Dunk, if he really is a good knight, he'll find other good knights to fight for him. And uh, and uh, on some level, I, I that's uh, Makar being the same as Baylor. Like, hey, it's in the hands of the gods. You know, like <laughs> if, if you can do it, that's what they wanted. So go ahead and try. Um, their, it also made me think about the eye. Oh, what's that? I was just gonna say that's their privilege. Yeah, <laughs> they don't know what yeah, it's like yeah. to not have you know bevies of men willing to to step up for them. Yeah, he, yes. Yeah, he I, not, I, I'm not saying they're. Is he not aware of the bribery? About this, yeah. But, <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but another thing to think about is there's a lot of other ways to, like, from a logical standpoint, if a cause is just, good men will fight for it. So if a cause isn't just, good men won't fight for it. If a cause is just bad men won't fight for it, a cause is not just bad men will fight for it. There's all those different ways you can look at it. And so you, on some level, I, it made me start thinking about the different people fighting on the different sides. Were they all good or bad based on, like they had different causes, yeah. right? Makar, his cause was really kind of to defend his family's honor. It's like, my son's got in trouble. I got to try to protect him. Yeah. And I think his cause is just, I think he's a good man, right? Like Baylor, almost obviously, Dunk, obviously. But- Arian's cause was not just, and he was he was a bad man fighting on the bad side, you know? So yes. it's kind of, it, it also sort of fits that idea of like, and he of, meant it exactly, and however you define good, it kind of fits almost every way you look at it's it. It's at know? the end of A Dance with Dragons that Varus says, you know, I don't want to kill you, Kevin. You're like a lot of people, a good man in service to a bad cause. Mm, yeah, that, yeah. When you were just talking about that, I think that's that's very much in line here because, yeah, Makar may be a decent man, but by, by backing his son up on this cause, he's very unjust. And that's a huge point. That's why I wanted to draw our attention to the thematic resonance of the dragony stuff with the others paired side by side, because both of those things are just enormously powerful, but they're not good or evil on their own. They're good or evil based on who's in charge of them. Like the dragons have been used for good and they've been used for evil. The others, well, they're all evil. But if they were created by the, the children, the source of them isn't all evil, right? And the people that work for them, like if the others are raising the dead of knights or people that used to be good people, they're using good people for a bad cause in, in a more supernatural way rather than a... Uh, you have to do what the king says kind of way. But it's the same sort of thing. You're compelled to obey whether it's good or bad, whether the whether the orders are evil or not. Usually it's gray, right, in this story, <laughs> but sometimes it's not. 
Um, like Arian, like obviously Arian is not gray in that sense. Maybe some of his upbringing, maybe some details around him, but like in terms of whether he's good or, or not, no, there's not, there's really no yeah. nuance there. Same with Gregor. Sometimes you might find a reason for something, but not a justification for it. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Well, good said, good said. <laughs> so you, you cited, uh, let's, you, you've got the first quote here under our funny list here. Uh, the, the the gist of it is that Arlen is insisting that they bathe at least once a month, even if they're not that dirty. <laughs> it's like a true knight is cleanly as well as godly. The old man always said, insisting that they wash themselves head to heels every time the moon turned, whether they smelled sour or not. Now that he was a knight, Dunk vowed he would do the same. Now, whoa! I mean, obviously, it's a different time and place. But hearing that they might not smell sour after not bathing <laughs> for a month in the rough, yeah, there's a difference. They definitely have a different standard for what smells sour than say we would. <laughs> yeah, sour might be relative. Uh... <laughs> it's like how sour is it? Like. <laughs> <laughs> I like this one very short line. Dunk was as good an elbower as any. <laughs> yeah, when he was pushing through the crowd yeah. so they could see better. And my, my thought was that if, if they make this into a show, they definitely need to have Ludacris playing at that moment. <laughs> yeah, oh, <laughs> I'm, see, I'm picturing lady. Dunk at like a Black Friday sale. <laughs> That's who you want to go shopping with. Yes, yes, you definitely do. I like this line before long, only crestless men were choosing him, which is <laughs> out of context. Like, wait, what? That's, of course, p people who are not challenging Lionel Baratheon anymore because of his throwing helmets in the crowds and crests. But it's just <laughs> crestless. What is these? Is this another thing about bathing is these guys that don't brush their teeth because I'm picturing like lizards, how they have their crests. <laughs> <laughs> How about this line? He seems a likely lad. Might be one day he'll make a knight. Or the king. <laughs> yeah. This is kind day, of a yeah. weird term, by the way. A likely lad. A likely lad, yeah. I guess that is that an old English term? Yeah, like I was kind of assuming. Because we don't really say lad in America, but they say lad in England a lot, you know. Yeah, does that like I'm guessing it means that in he Ireland, has promise? Too. Yeah, yeah, I do. I, yeah, I think you're totally yeah. right. That's what it means, but yeah, the boy yeah, shows likely promise. promising, I guess. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Whereas you might all otherwise interpret it as I like him. <laughs> yeah, like worthy or something. Yeah, his name is Lee Ladd. I like Lee Ladd. What's his name? <laughs> <laughs> uh, OK, so here's a pair of quotes that stand in contrast to each other. First, we have boy, I do not require counsel on who to challenge. Then a few minutes later, uh, hey, egg. Who's the least dangerous of these challengers? <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, don't counsel me. Hey, can you counsel me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because then he's like, Egg sure does know a lot about these challengers. It's that's one of the clues that he's not, you know, that he's actually highborn or whatever. He's like, he knows a lot about these guys, like specifics about how they joust. <laughs> Apparently, according to Guinevere Greenstone's likely lad is a very common term, common enough that there is a British sitcom named The Likely Lad. Whoa. Oh, yeah, thanks. From, it's from Green the 70s. In the 70s? Yeah, 60s oh, nice. and 70s. Excellent. Actually, just the 60s now that I look at it. But yes. Okay. That's cool. Uh, here is what Nina says is her funniest line in all of A Song of Ice and Fire. Whoa, that's a big one. You're not too tall, Dunk blurted out. You're just right for, uh, 
he realized what he had been about to say and blushed furiously. Four? <laughs> said Tan- Tancel, cocking her head inquisitively. Puppets, he finished lamely. <laughs> yeah, that's the t- yeah, puppets. Puppets. <laughs> that's a likely lad story. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> puppets. <laughs> that's good. <laughs> so we'll, we'll pick out some more funny lines from... For the next from the next one, there's always a few, you know, George isn't like super big on up out loud laughing, but he gets the jokes in there. He sneaks the jokes in for sure. Ed gets a lot of zingers. He does. He does. I think one of my favorite funniest moments uh, has to do with all. uh, It's related to the art that's in A Night of the Seven Kingdoms, you know, uh, by Gary Gianni. It's the scene where Egg, I mean, where Dunk takes a bath. And Egg is, you know, ministering to him in the bath. So he fills the bath water like so hot, crazy hot. But Dunk like doesn't want to show weakness. So he gets in anyways, even though it's like burning his skin. He hates it. And the picture the art in A Night of the Seven Kingdoms just shows like huge Dunk in a small bath. And his teeth are just gritting in pain while like Egg stands (laughs) next to him. (laughs) Quite a bit different than the humongous bathtubs that Brienne and Jamie hang out in in Heron Hall. True. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a mirror. There's always a mirror or a parallel somewhere with with Dunk <laughs> and with a lot of other characters. Folks, we're still building a long list of of fuller, uh, completer list of parallels. If you have parallels and and connections that you want to make sure we catch, send them to us. Do the same with any regular other types of questions you have or comments you have about Dunkin' Egg. We will be moving on to the Sworn Sword next week. Let's do a little more wrap-up, though. Did you have any final thoughts on the Hedge Knight? Um, Anything that you think is Hedge Knight-specific, Sean? Anything that maybe isn't appropriate to talk about in the following stories? Because obviously they have a lot in common, so some of the themes will continue. The main thing is at a couple points that I've missed about the idea of Dunk being a true knight or not. Okay. We've hit on it a few times, and I think I've sold you, I think, on the idea that it's not just this is or isn't that maybe there's ways that dunk isn't straight up lying, you know? And, and, and that's kind of what I was kind of concluding because I found most of the little arguments, like when I first read it, I, I was just oblivious to the idea that he wasn't really a knight yeah. in the first place. And, uh, but then it was, the idea was presented to me and I was like, huh, and I read it again. I was like, I see. I, I, I became suspicious myself, but then reading it again, I was like, I don't know. Almost every little piece of evidence I found could argue both ways. Some I've brought up, like for example, you know, piecing different things together. When Dunk describes how he was knighted, it's different than how Lionel Baratheon knights Stefan. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, oh, so he didn't. But then the person he describes how he's being knighted to, who's already challenging him, accepts that. He doesn't question that method of like, okay, so that's an argument. You see how it can be like an argument in both directions. And uh, I started concluding, you know, with these different things. There's uh, another one was the idea that uh, like one thing that makes people point at Dunk not being a knight when he hesitates to knight Stefan. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's because he's not really a knight, so he doesn't feel like, but maybe it's the same reason. We talked about this. Maybe it's the same reason that Sir Barristan didn't want to knight his squires. Like, I just Damn I just it. attacked the prince, and I, if I knight you, they might, and lose this, they might execute you. It might besmirch your honor, not help it. And that might even be why Lionel stepped up and did like, my honor's safe. If I know you, you're good. You know what I mean? Confident like, guy. We don't yeah. get to hear what Lionel's <laughs> thinking. And Dunks doesn't have time to even think about it because it gets called away. And I almost think it's it makes sense that all these things can be argued both ways because that's what George wanted. He didn't want it to be clear one way or the other. He's trying to be, be ambiguous. I think he's very careful about the different 
clues, if you will. Mm. The one sort of smoking gun, the one I have the toughest time with that I'm sure Scott Wartman is like on the edge of his seat because he keeps asking about this mm. is the monstrous lie. Yes. Dunk thinks about the monstrous lie. Uh, he, he can relate to Egg. And the line about I, have you ever you, you wanted something so bad that you were willing to lie for it? Right. So here's how I address that. And again, I don't think I'm completely discounting it, but I'm showing if, if this was a court of law and I had to make my case, the case I would make is just because Dunk knows how it feels doesn't mean he did it. Mm, a. That's cool. Yeah. B, it could be something else. Yeah. Uh, the story doesn't give us something the, else, but you're right. Like that's right. But you're right. It could be. Another one of the arguments that, that people make is that Dunk doesn't think about the moment of being knighted by Erwin, mm. but he also doesn't think about lying about being knighted by Erwin. So, you know, if he doesn't think about one, doesn't think about the other. That's true. He thinks uh, about lying, but not about that. And he thinks about not being knighted, yeah. but the two aren't directly connected. You're right. Yeah. So again, I, I don't want to just assume, like, I, I think it's clear George is trying to get us to at least think about it, which means there's a strong chance that it's true. But I still feel like there's a lot of evidence and no proofs. Uh, incidentally, and this might even tie in later in one of the other books, but he uh, he had a whole nother life before, right? Yeah. He was a thief and a beggar on the streets of Flea Bottom. You can imagine he might have told a monstrous lie there. He mm-hmm. might have told some lie to Sir Arlen to get into his service in the first place mm-hmm. there that he lied about to, uh, to, to get close to a girl or to get close to Sir Arlen or to get out of flea bottom or whatever. Anyway, my point is I can think like Dunk's had a lot of other stuff in his life that he potentially could have lied about that maybe he didn't think about. And maybe even a little further evidence to that point is another argument people use is that Dunk, the first couple times he introduces himself, he just says Dunk and not Sir Dunk. Well, he just became a knight. He's not used to it. He doesn't <laughs> yeah, think yeah. of himself that way. I like how people get married with the last name changes or how often you write the date wrong when the month changes or whatever, you know. Yeah. And it could be that the thing he did, the monstrous, the monstrous lie was long ago enough that he's not thinking about it anymore. Mm. Anyway, I totally accept the, that so many people don't believe Dunk is a true knight. And but I at least wanted to make my case, hopefully getting some people to rethink it, even if they keep believing it, that these are the points you're going to have to beat me on to to prove your case. And but what I'm really hoping to offer is a third alternative is that Dunk isn't necessarily straight up lying about it, that Dunk just has some question about the validity of it between his personal lack of confidence, between the potential of Arlen having been uh, alcoholic Maybe even in his own mind, he's distinguishing between a hedge knight and a real knight. You know, I, I could just see a lot of ways why in Dunk's mind, he might not think of himself as a real knight. That when those moments come up in a story, we interpret it as he wasn't really knighted. Mm. But I want to interpret it as he's not lying about it. He's just questioning the validity. Yeah. And, and one thing that supports is two things that support your argument pretty well here. One is that Dunk is the kind of person that would take it that seriously, that he would question the validity of it based on the circumstances, whereas other people would say, OK, it's done. That's it. It's like it's it's I'm in the club. You know, they wouldn't question it. Dunk is one of the few people that we can honestly say might actually take that seriously, whether whatever ceremony may or may not have happened. Well, if it did happen in some degree that it counted. And one thing I want to cast our eyes ahead for in regards to this is Brienne. If Brienne is eventually knighted in the confines of A Song of Ice and Fire, will there be people who question whether it's valid? And that would come back to this and and be a parallel to like, except instead of Dunk wondering, it it would be everybody else questioning it. And Brienne might question it too. Who knows? 
even Brienne, by the way, even similar to like if Dunk had knighted Stefan, might have worked against him. Yes. Brienne, on one hand, often might have sort of a claim toward knighthood, at least, or deserving knighthood, having been on the King's Guard. Yeah. But it was a traitor king. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's yep. almost worse. That's true. You know, so. That's true. Yeah, these gray, it's, it's these gray that is interesting. I never really thought about her being on the King's Guard and being a knight. Yeah, that's true. Have she there been non-knights Cle- on a King's Guard? Okay, yeah. Yeah, but Clegane was broke the rule, so Brienne kind of did too, I guess. Yeah, okay. Well, the Queen's, the, the, the Rainbow Guard was a new institution, so technically they... Yeah. Can yeah. make up their own new rules, I yeah. guess. They changed the colors, so why not the rules? <laughs> <laughs> Another sort of funny half foreshadowing moment that I forgot to mention was Dunk passing by a tent where he hears two people having sex, and he's like, I wonder if I'll die before ever kissing a girl. Well, considering that a, there's a large amount of theories in the fandom about who amongst these many people who with large size are Dunk's descendants. And many of them seem to be the case. Clearly, he's going to have some encounters that result in children. (laughs) So (laughs) no worries, Dunk. The women and the men both find you very attractive. So (laughs) no worries at all. Here's one more last little question. Okay. Did Lord Asford's daughter keep the title of Queen of Love and Beauty? <laughs> boy, yeah. We, we we brought her up like a couple episodes ago. Like, boy, this really didn't work out for her. Are they going to look at her as cursed? Like, this didn't go well. Like, is she going to cry about this? I would. I mean, if I were in her place, if I was a 13-year-old girl and this was du- brought, this was all made for me, I was like, oh, I'm the center of attention. This is going to be great. And then this happens? Woo! That is traumatizing. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what her status was after this, but her emotional state probably wouldn't be so great. Okay, yeah, let's uh, let's say some thanks here. Appreciate everyone coming to hang out today. Appreciate Nina giving us a lot of great discussion points and, and quotes and especially thing with Stephen Atwell and JFK. That seems really strong as a, as a parallel. Thank you to uh, our people over on Flick and Facebook and Slack and Discord. You guys are also doing great work drumming up things for us to talk about and consider throughout these episodes. And, of course, we're talking about other things over there as well. I mentioned it last time. We've got an Expanse reread going on in the Discord right now. That's pretty fun. We're still on book one. So this is uh, July 2021 that we're recording this. So if it's you could still get involved depending on when you're hearing this. And I want to bring something up for when the Expanse reread is finished. I'm thinking we should get a group together to read at least the first Wild Cards book, but per- maybe I'm hoping for the first trilogy. After that, we can scatter to the wind because there are many books. But, you know, reach out if you have some interest and maybe we'll start getting uh, things in line for that. Yeah. Did you say Wild Cards? Yeah. Have you, are you not familiar with Wild Cards, Sean? You don't want to be a Wild Carder with wild. me? I mean, I'm familiar with Charlie Kelly. <laughs> <laughs> George R. Martin, uh, It's that's one of his properties. Yeah, it's a shared universe. Charlie Kelly is one of George Martin's properties? Yeah. Funny, yeah. <laughs> but, Sean, Wild Cards is one of George's shared properties. Tons and tons of authors write in the world, different characters, and it's all about people with superpowers. It's excellent. But they're not just heroes, and they're not your standard powers. It's kind of in line with the boys, and what you would like there is my understanding. Misfits? Yeah, kind of in line with that. That's my, uh, you know, what I think of it as. There's a famous story where there, there was a time when Neil Gaiman pitched Sandman for the Wild Cards universe. They rejected him. 
Yeah. <laughs> George likes to joke him. about how it worked out well for him that yeah. we rejected it. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so so yeah, like it's not like super famous, but it's pretty big and it's been going a long time. And honestly, he tweets about it and posts about it, and I would just like to see a tweet about wild cards and be like, hell yeah, what's new in the wild cards world? Yeah, it, it's, it's unfortunately when George talks about wild cards, too often there's people that just jump on him for it not being a song of ice and fire. I've even been to two yeah. wild cards panels, so I, it's really uh, I, I should re- at least read one book, and I hope some of you <laughs> want to join me in this journey of becoming a wild carder. So that's kind of neat. We didn't know you weren't aware of wild cards, Sean. Now this, given yeah, given your your enjoyment of the boys and, and this kind of thing, you might this might be a big thing for you. We'll see. We'll have to circle back on that at some point. Thanks, everyone, for coming today. Appreciate the support. If you're a patron, um, we are don't know what we would do without you. Uh, if you want to join the crew over on Patreon, go to historyofwesteros.com and click on the Patreon link or go straight to patreon.com slash historyofwesteros. Pick the level that is right for you. Um, this is a great time to be supporting us when we're in between without lots of new material to deal with. Although, hey, we've never talked about The Hedge Knight before. It's kind of new, even though it was published in 97. <laughs> yeah. I'm super new to me in terms of talking about all of this, for yeah. sure. We just we really haven't talked about this. I feel like The Sworn Sword um, would be the one we've talked about the least. Yeah, like we've talked about the history surrounding it the most, but the events in it perhaps the least. And it's really interesting. I mean, a lot of people don't even know some of the connections Rohan Weber has to the greater story. And that's going to be fun. We look really look forward to that. So, folks, tune in next week or download the podcast version when it's out. As usual, we record every episode on YouTube Live almost always on Sunday at 3 Eastern. And then by early morning Monday, also Eastern time, the podcast version is out. Usually I stay up all most of the night editing it to have it ready for y'all who are commuters Monday morning or wherever you happen to be if it's not Monday morning for you and it's Monday morning for me. And we'll keep them coming, folks. See you next week for more Valar Re-Reese.